In 2019, Airbus surpassed for the first time Boeing as the largest aerospace company in the world as two crashes of Boeing's 737 MAX airplane forced a grounding of the fleet and a halt in sales, eventually costing it $20 billion in associated fines and delays. While Boeing maintains a relatively strong overall safety record as measured by crashes per million departures, the production problems with the 787 Dreamliner in the mid-2010s and the recent 737 debacle has cast some doubt as to the management and engineering practices at the century-old American icon of industry. Tonight we delve into the roots of what made the company as successful as it was, as well as some of the key events that arguably led to its current troubles that date back well into the 1990s and beyond. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time to hear it. It's not time to hear it. It's not time to hear it. It's not time Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Lander, and tonight I'm joined by uh, two of my co-hosts, Mr. Adam Smith. Hello. And uh, I believe Nick Mason is on the line. He might be uh, connected to uh, the dishwasher internet. Uh, I'm not sure. Yes, hello. Fresh from the spin cycle. Yes. I don't as you can, have a dishwasher. As you I, can see... I uh, wash my dishes like a, like a man. Yeah, los manos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you can see, uh, you know, times have fallen hard on the Myth Crew during uh, this high inflationary period. Uh, Nick has taken up residence in a dishwasher. Uh, I'm currently uh, actually uh, at a construction site trying to nail a house together. Uh, I don't know. What are you doing, Adam? How how are you surviving these days? Um, I try to keep some of the uh, the actual details of because I think my co-hosts are in jest right now, but I actually do do some of this stuff uh, for real. And um, I just finished something in the garage that will, uh, will let me survive a power outage without uh the grid i'll just i'll just leave it at that but that's what i've been working on all winter is it a uh a nuclear reactor can't say this is not a secure line i think adam has reinvented uh john d rockefeller's kerosene lamp i have a feeling that you've actually brought that back it's retro i'll let the uh the listeners uh conduct an informal poll and we'll see if they uh they guess but uh you know with energy prices where they are i think it's it's not an imprudent thing to have uh, a backup 
Well, speaking of uh, high energy prices taking their toll and uh, needing to have a backup, maybe a backup generator, uh, a backup uh, house, maybe a backup airplane company. Uh, tonight, we are interested in discussing Boeing, at least a little bit. Uh, Boeing, for those of you who uh, have never utilized uh, the internet and are only now listening to the show, is a American aerospace company. Uh, one of the oldest large companies still ap- operational in the United States, although uh, the Boeing we think of today really didn't begin arguably until uh, the 60s and, and uh, much more arguably until the, uh, the 1990s on some level. But uh, Boeing is a pre-World War II aircraft maker that uh, was a product of two men, one of whom was actually in the timber industry, and uh, decided that they would get into, get into the burgeoning field of aviation up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, which is where Boeing still is to an extent today. The heart of uh, Boeing engineering uh, still exists in the state of Washington. Uh, Boeing's been in the news a lot the last couple years. Uh, I think Boeing would have been in the news a lot more if uh, COVID had not hit the United States or hit the world. Uh, People seem to have already forgotten the, the just the firestorm of drama around uh, the 737 MAX crisis in late 2019. Uh, There was uh, basically two crashes a couple months apart, and uh, it was blamed on this model plane that uh, had been sort of refactored and re-engineered with uh, modern software, bigger engines on an old-fashioned 737 uh, uh, carrier platform. And uh, both of these crashes occurred, first one in Indonesia, second one in Ethiopia. And, uh, I believe it was an Indian airliner. Uh, I think it was Indian. Could be wrong. but No, but, well, it was an Indian airliner, but it was in Indonesia. I see what you mean. Yes, yes. Uh, my understanding is that uh, it was uh, this company, I believe called Lion Air. Lion Air, yeah. Uh, had a uh, really weird uh, safety record, and uh, uh, I guess we would ref- we would regard it as like the Pegasus Airlines or uh, Turkmenistan Air or Spirit Air. Here, you know, uh, this is really low cost travel. Uh, this is uh, sort of an island hopping strategy, uh, utilizing these advanced species of uh, avionics. Uh, why in the world, uh, you know, countries that really struggled with literacy less than a century ago are now flying planes is uh, maybe the discussion for another show. But at any level, we uh, had two of these plane crashes. They were very tragic. Uh, they captured uh, the imagination of uh, the world and the sympathies of the world. I believe in the second one in Ethiopia, there were multiple yeah. Americans on board uh, who who perished, which really uh, began, I would say, the, the drama. Uh, and in 2019, uh, when uh, a lot of countries, aviation, bureaucracies had 
determined that there was enough uh, preliminary evidence to find that the plane was at fault, that there was something wrong with the planes, although no one could quite figure out what it was yet. Uh, it was actually uh, China that led the global charge to have the plane taken off the market. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, not taken off the market, but grounded. Grounded globally, I should say, which yeah, really it took it off the doesn't market. surprise me at all. Yes. Um, China China wants to get into this business. Oh, yes. And uh, we'll get into that, toward, I think, later on. Um, but this has probably been what you've heard about Boeing the last few years. You know, Boeing, the... the, the well, there was that Netflix thing, that, which I yes. did not watch. But I, I actually wanted to do the show um, several months before that, I think, came out. And it was sort of coincidental, uh, perhaps, that it did. But uh, Hans, I think, has done done us the service of actually sitting through that but i do, yes i did do we I, want uh, do we want to delve into the 737 in depth now or do we want to maybe do it a little bit later because i think that's a good introduction you know because like, i think it's familiar to people but maybe we can go into the history yeah let's let's go into the history um i will say that yes i i did watch uh this very uh, poorly composited uh really actually kind of remarkably short uh, documentary about uh, the 737 crisis. Uh, you know, it was interesting is it was called The Rise and Fall of Boeing or something like that, Boeing, The Rise and Fall. I, I mean, it, it was grandiose in its subtitle, you know, The Rise and Fall of, of a Massive Aviation Company. And it, it doesn't actually establish the rise or the fall of Boeing. In fact, I walked away from it um, – Knowing more about random people in Ethiopia than and, and like their families who were on the planes than yeah the the company or the plane um, I, I it was a very very uh, weirdly concocted uh, hit piece I would argue on yeah. Boeing uh, and I'm I'm certainly no uh, corporate chill. Uh, I think as one of our listeners called me a proto-socialist uh, at one point, but uh, yeah, I would regard it as a hit piece. I mean, it was it was we'll get into it. It was just bad, but yeah, I believe it was called Boeing: The Rise and Fall. Uh, there was a, an additional documentary that actually came out not too long ago. Uh, I believe before this one that was made by Netflix. Uh, it was made by uh, Frontline. CBS Frontline. I used to watch a lot of Frontline before yeah. the internet kind of took over my uh, source of documentary information. And I, I I do still have a lot of respect for that legacy of uh, at least filmmaking style. I don't know in terms of, uh, you know, the veracity of some of their claims now that I've uh, become skeptical of almost everything that the mainstream puts out, but it's kind of a PBS out outfit. And uh, the production quality though, on most of the front lines that I used to watch back in the nineties and things like that uh, were, were pretty good. So yeah. I, I would expect them to be of a more uh, higher uh, journalistic rigor than perhaps something on this uh, Netflix thing. But I watch uh, the frontline documentaries because they do post them online, and there's other ways to to, to get them if you really want to watch them. Um, I do watch them occasionally. Some of them are, are are actually, like you said, they're well done. I would say if I had to compare these two, and it's very it's weird that they both came out recently. Um, so 
to me that I assume well, it's, it's pre- topical. Well, it's they're they're preparing, but they're preparing some kind of I don't know bigger push against Boeing or who knows what's going on. But they're they're sort of prepping the runway, not to make a pun for something. <laughs> uh, but I will say that the the Frontline documentary, uh, uh, which the title of which is escaping me, we'll put in the show notes. Uh, but it, it's just Boeing something. Uh, the mistake or the Boeing's mistake or something like that. Uh, much better, much, much better than, I mean, not great, but much better than the Netflix one. I mean, the Netflix one is borderline unwatchable. Um, it, it spends an enormous amount of time on the victims, at least with the frontline one, you learn a little bit about a little bit more about the company. There's interviews with people that work at the company and there's interviews, uh, regarding, the FAA and the NTISB and some of these sort of obscure government bureaucracies that uh, shared a good amount of the blame. Uh, so th- there's there's a level of that that's more interesting. In I would uh, like to comment briefly, uh, just on you guys talking about uh, frontline like PDS. I would say in general, I've seen some decent. I think that you'll find that a lot of this publicly funded documentary type content you'll find some little gems i mean it's even true also of the bbc i don't i think it may be because they just don't expect many people to watch it but you can find some good ones i know that i remember i can't remember the exact name or context of it but frontline did do a very interesting little piece on the role of the opium trade in the uh, american occupation of afghanistan yeah, that that's um, that's good to hear. Um, like I said, I I used to I used to give a lot of credence to the perspective they offered, but I haven't really looked into who who's behind the production of those things. Uh, one always wonders, you know, what's the what's the ulterior motive? But uh, the fact that they're somewhat critical of US oh, it's invariably is, the foundations. It. It's like uh, Forge yeah. Forge Foundation, yeah. Carnegie. Yeah, uh, it's the NGOs, the big like CIA oligarch connected NGOs. Particularly, and you, we can speculate as to the angle behind some of these, but mm-hmm. they're just kind of let loose because these people throw a lot of money around, mm-hmm. and I just don't think that there's a lot of attention paid to it because they know that like their people are doing it, and so because they're not made with the expectation of a lot of eyes on it, mm-hmm. mass consumption. It's not carefully managed. Where if you compare that to something like, uh, like Netflix documentaries on, uh, say, like the White Helmets, um, things like that, it's mm-hmm. going to be a, a, a very different. You know, they don't attach a list, a talking head like CIA cutouts, you know, George Clooney or whatever to, to do these things. They're just a bunch of academics, and you know. I won't say independent because no one's in this is independent, but shit slips out. Yeah. It makes sense. Makes sense. So just to give some background on, on this company, I don't have a encyclopedic uh, memory of the entire Boeing's Boeing company's history. But my basic understanding was the origins of it were obviously in the uh, Seattle, Washington area and interestingly enough, uh, prior to, I think, World War II, the Boeing company actually was the 
owner of what became United Airlines. And so the aviation industry obviously was much more um, nascent in that time. And the Wright brothers coming up with a uh, an airfoil, self-propelled uh, airplane, basically, that, that could get off the ground uh, and, and glide and, and not fall back to earth um, at freefall speed was in the early 1900s. And so it was really a, um, a frontier of tra- transportation and travel and had not really taken much of the, uh, the skies or the share of people's transportation until much later. So early on, you, you could sort of understand how a manufacturer of airplanes might even have to get into the business of transporting people because they wouldn't necessarily have customers that would trust them uh, to manufacture something reliable enough that they could actually dedicate their entire business to just uh, flying people around. But they were broken up under uh, antitrust regulations and Boeing became uh, focused more on the manufacturing itself. And uh, they're one of the older companies, as Hans pointed out, uh, you know, the few that remain today that started a long time ago are mainly in the defense industry. Uh, the, the small aircraft uh, like Cessna, uh, Piper, th- there are much more of those, but a lot of them have struggled um, because the private aviation market is it's somewhat of a, a rich man's hobby, to be honest. And executive jets uh, do have uh, probably a fairly consistent demand. Uh, but the most stable demand of all has been really the military and commercial aviation, which is basically uh, building large aircraft that effectively serve as, uh, as sky buses. Uh, and that business was, as I mentioned, not really that big, uh, such that it, it didn't have that many dedicated players so that Boeing was actually doing some of the work itself until really after World War II uh, when the jet age came about. Uh, but before we dive into that, um, Hans, do you have anything you want to say prior to World War II? Uh, because World War II obviously was, was sort of a transformative time as well. Yes. Uh, oh, I wanted to say you were right about uh, uh, Boeing being united with uh, United Airlines. So there was a, a company called the United Aircraft and Transport Company. And in, uh, I think it was 34, this huge, so this is like uh, one of the, it's almost like a throwback to the, to the Gilded Age. It's what, it was this giant um, aerospace conglomerate. And you got hit with antitrust and just totally just, you know, broken up. And it included, you know, what would go on to become Sikorsky Aircraft, United Airlines, Pratt and Whitney engines, and uh, Hamilton standard propellers. And there was a lot of like smaller little companies and divisions inside of there that some of them died, some of them got spun out, you know, some of them had their patents acquired. Um, but it was sort of, one of these last uh, hangers-on of the Gilded Age, sort of big industrial conglomerate era of the 20s. And it got it was one of the first targets of antitrust um, in kind of the, the uh, implosion of the Great Depression. There was this trend of, you know, hitting all these big 
industrial conglomerates. And and William Boeing uh, himself was uh, was basically uh, also a little late to the game for uh, for that era of like the Gilded Age industrialist. He was he was born in 1881, so right about the time that we think. Vanderbilt's and, and Morgan and a lot of these smaller actors are getting, you know, actually amassing power and building infrastructure and building out their networks. He's just born. So he, you know, very quickly built a, a business empire that resembled those of uh, people that already had them around the time he was born, but he just kind of was late to the, he was too late to the game. Uh, I think that if he, he could have benefited immensely from era in which uh, the industrial conglomerates were allowed to really thrive, uh, particularly for like a 40, 50 year period. Uh, who knows what the, you know, the aviation industry would have looked like. The, the irony though, is that Boeing today is basically uh, nearly a monopoly on some level for a lot of what it does. Uh, and it has just such a massive over 200 firm uh, kind yeah. of built in supply chain that uh, it effectively is a slightly decentralized industrial conglomerate, not much more different than uh, you know, sort of what was critiqued nearly a hundred years ago uh, in, in 1934. Uh, so I thought that, that that's an interesting piece of irony that they broke it up. And you know, you saw that with like Standard Oil. You know, there's lots of studies showing that the breakup of Standard Oil really ultimately about a hundred years later resulted in a nearly uh, in simpatico level of for, for particular things. Uh, but in the, uh, so prior to World War, uh, uh, World War II, Boeing was not really that interesting of a company on some level. It, it had a lot of good manufacturing, uh, but the, the aviation industry was sort of hit or miss. And there were times when Boeing was actually manufacturing furniture. They were manufacturing all kinds of assorted goods. They were taking like custom orders for random stuff because they have these uh, warehouses, they have factories, they have workers, they have tools. And, uh, you know, when there's an off season or, or when there's a dip in the industry uh, or people just aren't interested in flying, uh, they would do other things to try and keep the company afloat. Uh, we don't think of it much now, but Adam, Adam actually mentioned this before the show that uh, air travel being available to pretty much anybody, uh, unfortunately, is a relatively new thing. It wasn't even 70, 80 years ago when you would probably have to take large passenger ships to get around, or you'd have to take you know long uh, train trips. You'd have to stay at multiple hotels and it would be like a real journey yeah i mean just imagine uh, ellis island uh being it's easily one of the most significant technological development globalization yes absolutely absolutely Uh, and 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 prior to world war ii this was the reality people just generally didn't uh, like to fly as much or it was sort of a a coming and going fad 
part of the issue was too is that it was such a it was such a new technology and in many ways the processes safety standards the material science the actual mechanical engineering all of it was uh, none of it or i'm sorry none of it was mature i mean all of it w- was still very new you had operations that were totally different from each other's that were sometimes only 15 miles away uh, and boeing was one of these small little companies that uh, just had their own sort of internal ways of doing things and you wouldn't even maybe find those same standards applied elsewhere in the aviation industry uh, it was sort of it was just the wild west uh, so they had some like they had uh, uh, some early contracts with the US Army so and, and the Postal Service and basically you know Boeing began as a, as a manufacturer for, for farmers, land surveyors, the government, and the military. That was primarily their market uh, because those were the only things people could think of to use for planes at the time. Land surveillance in particular and intelligence gathering. So Boeing really excelled at this sort of early game in, in, uh, in contract manufacturing. And one of their big successes was a uh, a contest that they won to develop a, an Army Air Service fighter. So this is you know when people are then envisioning after World War One, you know what can we actually do with planes? Like you know can we uh, arm them? Can we turn them into bombers? Can, you know can we make them multi-purpose? Uh, you know what you know can we come up with standardized manufacturing? Boeing is sort of at the forefront of that, sort of by luck. They don't, they don't, there's no real great reason why Boeing starts winning these contracts. They have good engineers. Uh, They developed some, they were some of the first to develop good internal processes. uh, And that's about it. And a little bit of luck. And yeah, Boeing. Uh, Eventually into the 30s, they had a couple big moves that they started to make. So this is when you first start to see the beginnings of the passenger planes. Uh, and they worked with Pacific Air Transport, I believe, to uh, build out this industrial conglomerate that I was just talking about. And Boeing decides to sort of not create the market for passenger planes, but really push it forward. Uh, and a little bit of that is branding. A little bit of that is big investment in technology. And a little bit of that is sort of leveraging their government contracts and their connections in the government to sort of smooth the way for this, to you know look the other way in some issues, to not you know, worry too much about safety protocols, all this sort of thing. Boeing has it handled internally. Uh, similar to the early days of General Dynamics, where you know started out as sort of an, like a little industrial shop, kind of a defense contractor, but they made a lot of their big breaks by having a trust us attitude and leveraging accumulated government ties to to earn that trust, I should say, and to make sure that they weren't bothered too much. Uh, eventually, they're like, you know, the, one of the sole suppliers of the U.S. Postal Service's contracts. Uh, they get hit with the antitrust. 
And Boeing sort of moves on from there um, into the World War II era. Uh, and some of these model planes, uh, if you're an aviation aficionado, I'm not. Uh, I think Adam is a little. But you've probably heard of some of these early ones. They have the Model 40A, uh, which they're flying you know, between San Francisco and Chicago. Uh, they have the Model 80. Uh, and these are like little planes, okay? These, these are not carrying 100 people. These are carrying a few people. Uh, but what's... What Boeing is doing is that they're they're sort of pioneering a couple of things. They're pioneering clearly defined routes. Boeing invests heavily in saying we are going to build planes around routes rather than the other way around. We're not going to necessarily build uh, planes that can do any route. And certain air travel paths require different contingencies, different pockets of air, heat, conditions, different kinds of storms. See, Boeing's philosophy early on was we're going to build the market. We're going to you know, actually generate the revenue to eventually make sort of the all-purpose aircraft by monopolizing ourselves on certain routes. Well, And they would actually... Benefit. Regarding the the route strategy, um, I'm not familiar with the early uh, thought processes going on to these uh, precursor aircraft, but I'm much more familiar with the more modern airplanes that we have today. And the one that comes to mind that I found uh, fascinating was the strategies employed by Boeing uh, as compared with Airbus uh, when Airbus was coming out with its uh, 747 competitor, the A380, which is the double-decker jumbo jet, which is the biggest passenger jet um, out there. The the largest aircraft uh, technically was destroyed <laughs> in the Ukraine-Russian conflict recently. That was the Antonov uh, 235 or something like that. But um, for the passengers, the A380s got the biggest uh, number of seats. And the decision, though, was that the people at Boeing, because they had already built the 747, and we'll get into that hopefully more later, but uh, most people know that the 747 by its uh, hump on the on the front front section, um, which technically is is the second deck, but it doesn't extend all the way back to the tail. So it it's basically a single decker for the most of the plane, and it's got four engines. Uh, used to be called the Queen of the Skies. It's a big it's a big aircraft, um, and they've made it progressively bigger since its introduction. By the way, so if you look at early 747 models, they were much smaller, but it's uh, it's quite large. It can hold over 500 people, um, and they were noticing declining sales and they were kind of like, do we need to even make another jumbo jet? But uh, Airbus wanted to. And part of that was the governments in Europe wanting to compete with Boeing and, and take share market share from them. And so it was partly government subsidies, partly government uh, encouragement to do it regardless of what the market was telling Airbus. Um, but what Boeing looked at, and I think it's proven to be more uh, business uh, intelligent, was that they looked at the the changes in the transportation uh, patterns of passengers and noticed that there was much more activity between regional airports uh, growing as opposed to these hub and spoke uh, transport networks 
between big cities that would that used to be the traditional way of uh, traveling where a lot of the major airlines would feed in from regional uh, airports into these hubs and then pack them into these large aircraft and then send them over to other hubs and then distribute them out again. I think what happened was basically people got sick of the layovers and all that stuff. So they preferred to travel direct. So Boeing invested in the uh, 787, the Dreamliner, uh, which was sort of a mid range um, uh, fuel efficient aircraft, as opposed to this really gigantic thing, which was dependent on hubs. And it, uh, it proved to be correct, uh, in my opinion, and many analysts as well, because the, uh, the money that Airbus has sunk into the A380 has actually not been recovered uh, still. And I don't know if they're projected to break even on it uh, ever uh, with current sales patterns, unless they have a huge number of orders in the future, obviously. But um, things like that can really make or break your company. And there have been many companies that have actually gone bankrupt because they got this uh, this calculus wrong. It's very tough to do this right. Um, it's, it's almost akin to, you know, the semiconductor industry where you're pouring billions of dollars into these gigantic fabs. And if you don't get the tech curve and the market curves, right. Uh, you could be sitting on unused capacity or not have enough capacity. Uh, so it's really tough to, to do this stuff. And frankly, uh, for a small company, it's almost impossible. And so you, you kind of have to have the economies of scale of a Boeing, uh, or an Airbus to, uh, to even make these bets and even hope to survive, let alone thrive. Um, and back in the day when there was much less demand, there was much more you know, when you have a smaller marketplace, you're going to typically going to have bigger swings and the, the ebbs and flows of demand and supply. And, uh, it's, it's even harder when you're in a nascent industry. I think today with, you know, millions of people traveling, um, every, I don't know, week or maybe even every day, I don't know how many people travel per day, but it's, it's a lot, right. Compared to back, uh, in the thirties, it's probably 20 times more, uh, at least, um, it was much harder to make those bets uh, correctly back then, I would argue, because the uh, law of large numbers didn't really apply as much. So things were much more volatile and you had more competition. And so uh, the fact that they've survived, I think, is a testament to the, the leadership and the talents uh, at that company. It's a tough industry. When did they first develop a relationship with the American state? Well, they were selling bombers in World War in II, obviously. And then, yeah, as Hans no, mentioned, no, no, they were... The, it... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm getting to... I mean, you mentioned, like, the post post office. But uh, that was more of a, like, a contract. Were they building them for the post office or just flying for the post office? I, 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 are you talking, Nick, about, them. like, selling airplanes or designing specifically for the government? Or what, what do you mean exactly? I'm sure they've had a relationship, you know, de- depending on how you define it. For well, you, you tell me when. Well, yeah, when was. I, I mean, they are essentially a de facto monopoly. So no, they're 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 a duopoly, and in the defense industry, they're not a monopoly. They're just a large company, but it's it's a much more of a monopolistic relationship today than it it, it ever was for sure. But they still have competition. Um, it's just not as much. Uh, you know, Airbus is their biggest competitor, and they're but they're so not Boeing's r- relationship with the American state is nearly a hundred years old. 
Um, in fact, you can argue that 1923, when they're asked to start fulfilling contracts for a uh, pursuit fighter uh, for the U.S. Army Air Service, is when the relationship formally uh, begins. So this is a nearly 100-year-old relationship. I, w- I would say that uh, Boeing, however, is not one of these companies that is uh, ex- has been exclusively reliant on that relationship. This isn't uh, Lockheed or General Dynamics, where which we've talked about, where you know these companies uh, literally just could not exist without the U.S. state. They, they don't, or they would have a radically different business model. They would do something totally different. They are effectively extensions. For Bell. Yeah, I mean, you know, these these are extensions of of the uh, of the Pentagon in some ways. Boeing, in in from what I can surmise, like many companies and like many technologies and many industries, has its roots in a relationship with the U.S. government or in the military. And that's true of a lot of consumer-grade technology that we use now. So it's not explicitly a, I would say, a mark on them or something like that. But it was a, a facet of what they were doing. Yeah, they're they're definitely not as dependent upon the military buying their airplanes. Or, I mean, they have other divisions besides aerospace, but it's predominantly... Uh, airplanes um you know i know lockheed does they try to get into like the the cloud business but uh, but <laughs> boeing obviously is mostly airplanes well, um, last i heard yeah. lockheed was like trying to get into the fusion energy business yeah, or they were yeah. trying to get into like the water desalination business i mean okay. you know a lot of this are just like they're just actually fulfilling military contracts but they yeah they Lockheed does this thing where they, uh, as a puff piece, every five to seven years, they task the uh, guys over at Skunk Works with like some totally ridiculous uh, out of business model idea. And the whole point of it is to generate like goodwill in Time Magazine. Uh, There's literally no other purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we, we, we did a show or two on Lockheed and, uh, it's it's another interesting animal, but I, I just wanted to make the point, and and I would say uh, without looking at the numbers that about half of Boeing's business is military, but that that used to be much less actually prior to the '90s when they merged with McDonnell Douglas. Uh, it used to be mostly uh, commercial aviation, which was probably um, close to 80 percent, maybe more of their business. I would estimate. Yeah. Uh, so th- their heritage is really the, uh, you know, just the, the passenger travel. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, uh, like I said, there were very few practical ut- utilizations of air travel uh, in the 20s and 30s. You had just no great market for it. Boeing set a lot of the groundwork for creating a commercial passenger-driven aviation industry. Uh, that, that is, that is you know, almost uniquely one of Boeing's uh, big contributions. 
Yeah, part part of it was just the the scale just did not exist, and it's sort of a right. chicken and egg problem. It's like, well, if we have scale, our costs go down, but we don't have scale, so our costs are high, so we can't afford to make the scale. So it's like these pioneering companies, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for because they, in effect create a lot of the opportunities that are sometimes capitalized on by other companies and people later on and definitely the consumer benefits. But the, uh, you know, the early age was, you know, you had small airplanes that were piston driven, that were relatively slow and inefficient, uh, and your airfield infrastructure just didn't exist. And, you know, the avionics were basically very primitive. And so you're flying by the seat of your pants, literally. And, it's dangerous. Um, I mean, like the fatality rates of commercial aviation have gone down tremendously, uh, and very expensive and the route network was, was undeveloped. And so it just, it wasn't very attractive for most people or, uh, practical even. Uh, so it, um, again, it, it took, it took what happened basically in world war two to make what we consider today, modern air travel possible because, two things. I mean, it was obviously a lot of the military spending on the technology that drove forward, obviously the jet engine and the airframe designs, but also the infrastructure that went into the uh, airport build outs uh, and the speed of the the jet enabled, frankly, uh, a lot of this, this ordinary consumer flight to be more and more possible. But even back in the fifties and sixties, it was still considered sort of a you know, high class. I mean, the term, the, the jet set was, was a thing and it was still considered kind of fancy to get on an airplane today. It's sort of a, uh, you know, normal thing, but it, it definitely would took a long time, probably into the nineties before that really became kind of a, just a consumer regular thing. Um, and then nine 11 changed, changed things very briefly and, um, world, uh, the world financial crisis kind of caused a hiccup. And obviously COVID was a big one. Um, but it, it, I think, I think commercial aviation is probably still going to be something to expect. Uh, we'll see what they do with COVID, but it's just too useful. It's, it's, it's so it's, it's incredibly productive to be able to move people around for meetings and, and all that. And cargo is, is part of it too. But I think most of aviation today is really about moving people um, you know, air freight is not particularly fuel efficient. And do you really need, you know, that, uh, PlayStation 17 tomorrow? Well, air freight is an interesting market because Boeing too made huge advancements there, particularly with, uh, uh, 747 Dreamliner. And well, uh, the Dreamliner is 787, but are you talking about the 747? Because the, the design of the 747 was actually the w- the reason it has that hump is so they can open up the nose. Oh, wait, so I'm they sorry. Could, they could take in. Dreamliner. I'm sorry. My, my notes are just in terrible shape. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> 747? So no, it was the 747-200 was okay. the original like freight aircraft. It was uh, yeah. delivered to Lufthansa. And it was... I think, uh, you know, Boeing claims uh, that 90% of all global air freight is utilizing at least one of their freighter aircraft, which I find fascinating that they, this is actually a very quiet market. Uh, you know, the, the number, the, there's 
two basic drivers for the market. It's fuel efficiency and uh, it's uh, the how wide the body of the plane is, how much how much weight and space can it really support. And Boeing has done a tremendous job building out the entire global uh, uh, air freight industry on some level. I mean, you know, I think the, this last show we were chatting about, you know, sort of big supply chain trends and and uh, sort of all these large developments that have taken place over the last few centuries. And this is one of them. This is, you know, one of the national strategies of the United States for a long time as a whole. And uh, this is probably an area where Boeing has worked tightly with other companies and the U.S. government, the U.S. Trade Office, is expanding trade routes. Of course, you capture those trade routes and you regulate them and you protect them and so forth. This is a very old game. But you expand them. You find ways to improve them. You find ways to make them more efficient. And you find more people who want to put their goods onto those chains. And the United States pursued this strategy of let's develop as many trade routes and supply chains as possible, even if we're not maybe directly involved in some of them. Uh, and one of the ways that we, you know this was accomplished, uh, other than the uh, massive container ship industry and the the retrofitting of a lot of American and global uh, uh, docks and ports uh, by American companies to support the container ship paradigm, uh, was the air freight paradigm. And Boeing's been doing this for about 50 years, a little over 50 years, maybe closer to 60. And they have successfully created massive trade links where they would just not have been possible. What, to what, what in particular are you thinking of when you say Boeing did that? Because, there, you know, air cargo has been a thing for a while and plenty of other companies have cargo airplanes Um you know, like the DC-3, for example, is uh, still being used in, in certain parts of the world because it's, um, it's piston-driven. But it used to, it was used, the military variant was used uh, in the Berlin Airlift, for example. And the way they load the cargo, that was really inefficient you compared to... You could fit a lot of cocaine on those. Well, they're they're big, for sure. Uh, they're not very discreet, though. They're pretty loud. Um but yes, yeah, that 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 could be something you could do for sure. Uh, what what I was getting at though was that the the cargo load uh, design for those types of planes is through um, basically just you have to put a forklift right up next to the airplane, and then you have a crew just like b before the container uh, vessels or container ships were really uh, developed in the seventies. Uh, the the cargo, the, the air cargo was done similarly. Everything was like loosely packed. You had to individually take the cargo items and then stow them into the hold, which is very time consuming and labor intensive. Uh, what they've, um, they've gone into, and I don't know if it was Boeing, but I mean, the, the standard today for most uh, air, air cargo is that you have these containers that effectively are, are loaded on with a forklift, but in a container. And then they have these, yeah. these rollers that slide them back and forth into the hold and they're, they're standardized units. And so you have these essentially, uh, very much more planable, um, configurations 
that uh, the airplanes are designed around. And the only thing I'm aware of, uh, again, that Boeing did was the 747, that hump is to allow for the front of the aircraft actually to be opened up the nose and then they can load in from the front as opposed to the side, which can actually be very awkward if you have something long. Um, and they did that because they didn't know if the airplane was going to be successful as a passenger jet. And so they wanted to have the option to market it towards the cargo market. Um, and it turned out that it was successful in both. But the uh, the original design was the, kind of like a hedge. Um, so, But my question was, what in particular did Boeing do in your mind that other companies were not doing? Because, I mean, you know, Lockheed was in this market, uh, Douglas Aircraft, uh, before they... They were in the market, now now they're out of it. I mean, you know, what they did was build the plane that everybody wanted. I mean, that was their big contribution. Boeing had this really, I mean, until recently, this really fantastic set of internal processes for delivering high-quality planes at a rapid pace. So that was what they did that was unique to them. They delivered hundreds of these planes all over the world for decades on end. You're talking about just generally, like no particular model, or are you talking about a specific model? I'm talking, well, about the 747 first, okay. but all of their freight models in general. I mean, they have other models that they're currently working on. It's not exactly like that's all they have. I mean, they have a... Uh, a triple seven eight freighter now but like they have a series of models that they've pioneered that have become sort of the quiet winner of this entire market and they've they've blown out all these huge supply chains that just didn't exist before you have boeing aircraft being so reliable and able to economically carry enough product you can actually move product from south america to China or from South Africa to Finland in under 24 hours. I mean, this is like a massive achievement on some level. Now, you know, there are people I'm sure will find reasons why that's not an achievement. That's probably bad, but this is a huge achievement that Boeing has been able to uh, make. They've been able to make planes that can actually perform that frequently so that it's economically viable to do so. So this was, you know, part of the wider strategy of the United States that Boeing sort of fit into was building out and capturing trade routes. And that was one of their chief uh, goals, I assume, on some level internally, was to facilitate that. Because now sort of the market is inseparable from them. Uh, and we can get to that subject later, but they really are the market for commercial aviation, whether it's passengers or freight. Uh, you, you really just can't remove them at all anymore. And, and that was, I think, one of the, their other big achievements. But uh, we can go back to uh, World War II. Uh, I think you had some stuff that you wanted to talk about for you know Boeing's era in World War II. I don't have any notes on it, but I can just uh, sort of recite the airplanes that I'm familiar with. I mean, obviously, the the B-17 and the B-29 were the the two big boys that dropped bombs on both continents of the uh, 
uh, European and Pacific theaters um, that were Boeing manufactured. Uh, the B-24, I think, was a Ford, actually. <laughs> uh, they, they made Ford make them at uh, government uh, fiat. He didn't really want to, but he didn't want to lose his company at the same time. Uh, but Boeing was making uh, B-17s, uh, the Flying Fortress, which is the, the kind of goofy-looking thing that has um, a, a curved curved uh, vertical stabilizer that has, uh, you know, just a, as sort of a, a kid, you know, you can look at it as kind of a neat airplane because it's got these gun turrets all over it. Uh, and it was going into basically a uh, fighter nest of, of, uh, above, um, above Europe and, uh, dropping bombs, I believe, uh, during the day, I think the British, uh, the, I think the Americans were uh, tasked with a bombing, doing bombing runs during the day and the British were doing it at night. Uh, so they split it up that way, but they were flying out of England into, uh, Germany and France and places like that, uh, during the war prior to, uh, Normandy. And then, uh, after effectively, you know, Europe was, was subdued. The, uh, the B-29 took a huge role in the uh, Pacific campaign. Once the uh, U S Navy had completed most of its Island hopping, they got within bomber range where they could launch, um, uh, these bomber squadrons over Japan and the B-29, which, uh, was actually without any defensive gun turrets because it, it was called the uh, Stratofortress. It was designed to fly so high that uh, the Japanese uh, Zeros couldn't catch up with it and even intercept the thing. And it was um, it was responsible for dropping the majority of the uh, incendiary bombs that that flattened and burned most of uh, Japan's major industrial uh, capacity in in urban areas. Um, and I believe they also dropped the, uh, the atomics, but the, uh, the majority of the bombing that took place in Japan was definitely done by the firebombs. And those were B-29s. And they built a lot, uh, you know, maybe a thousand, possibly more. I mean, it's it just the, the sheer quantity that was built in World War II in the United States. It, it's, it's astonishing. Um, we've kept some of that capacity for the military, obviously, but it's, um, it's just a different country. And the industrial base of the United States was second to none in that time. And Boeing was, right. uh, just a, an exemplar of that, um, and how much it could, it could churn out. Yeah. Boeing's role in the, in World War II is pretty well summarized by, um, It was really about just turning as many government contracts as possible. <laughs> I mean, you know, the entire uh, the entire it was just reoriented towards uh, bombers, and it was, I think, a good investment for Boeing, particularly because bombers require uh, such larger economies of scale to effectively produce. You need more tools, more guys. You need to enhance your internal processes. Uh, you need to enhance your safety metrics. You need to enhance your QA. 
so there's a lot more work that goes into it. And there were lots of uh, these tiny little uh, sort of industrial achievements uh, across the board inside Boeing, whether it was new ways of, uh, of heating rivets or new ways of developing blueprints uh, or drawings. You know, Boeing had really come up with an effective, mature company to support the uh, the factories. And I think that there's a there's a real delineation between those two. People often, uh, I think, lose out on, or they, they fail to understand, I should say, uh, that in order to have a successful industrial conglomerate, a successful industrial corporation, there's a lot more that goes into it other than just we have a lot of good tools and we have uh, smart engineers. And Boeing had, you know, was kind of forced to develop a lot of that rather than being this sort of on and off again uh, supplier of, sort of random contracts and while it was sort of doing its own internal R&D work. It had to actually become a full-fledged industrial organization. And when World War II ended, you know, it didn't spin down. It was it had all these people, it had all these processes, and it was just a matter of uh, basically finding you know finding a purpose for all of that. And this is and and they they very quickly found a uh, a reliable customer during the Cold War in the U.S. government with their subsequent military contracts. Yes. And small correction, I called the B-29 the Stratofortress. It was technically the Super Fortress. The Stratofortress was the next big bomber that Boeing developed, which was the B-52, which was, can be seen in, well, still today, but it's uh, it's featured in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, yeah. so, A curious fact about that. I'd like to add uh, in Dr. Strangelove. So I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I, I've heard this multiple times over the years. And that's that uh, the feds actually visited Stanley Kubrick because the accuracy of the uh, bomber uh, was too good. And they were, they were, they wanted to know how exactly Stanley Kubrick was able to recreate this because apparently they did not collaborate on the production of the film <laughs> the same way that most uh, big budget pictures these days and even back then were made uh, with the Defense Department uh, hand in hand. How do you think he knew what uh, the, I, I suppose it was the inside of the airplane looked like because obviously there were press photos of what the outside looked like. Yes, I it, guess, it was but, the interior. Yeah. Yeah. That they were most, did, did he know somebody who worked at um, Boeing or, I, you uh, know, I, I actually, well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that he was like a turbo autist. And <laughs> to the point where like, another thing about that movie is that, uh, him and, um, Hayden would play chess and on the set and when the, there's a various chess like general ripper has a there's like a chess board in various scenes and in chronological order there's continuity uh with the chess games nice like the, the progression of the board there's there's internal continuity to that 
Yeah, this is some of the reasons why people like have gone down a lot of speculation as to whether or not he worked with uh, the government to fake the moon landings. Uh, there was even a mockumentary made with the participation of his widow in which like the premise is that that's what happened. But he, it's possible that he was just given, I, I don't know, I can only speculate, but I imagine that because of his eye for detail, uh, he would not have needed that much material in order to create it if he had enough images. But yeah. where did he get those images? Because this was presumably classified material. I mentioned earlier that it was the, the sort of jet engine that made the modern air travel industry, what it is today, I, I would argue, and many others have argued. Uh, but in, I guess, the uh, the late 40s, early 50s, it was it was an open question as to what, what the aviation industry was going to do. And, you know, we don't need to get into the esoterics of uh, propulsion technologies, but the the various manufacturers were definitely experimenting with the the various uh engine technologies and if i recall correctly it uh it was i think the boeing 707 that really demonstrated how jet travel could be done uh above all others it was it was one of the better performing aircraft and it's funny if you if you have nothing better to do and you're on the internet and hanging around YouTube channels, uh, you could probably find footage of the, uh, the early jet engines and they, they look very different than the ones we have today. They're much, uh, much skinnier, uh, much louder, uh, and they were much less fuel efficient, but, uh, the, the designs were, were kind of cool, uh, because it was sort of like you're strapping effectively a, a very mild rocket engine underneath a, a wing and uh, pushing, uh, pushing out compressed and uh, high temperature gas to move your airplane forward, as opposed to basically a uh, a little little spinning thing that that blows air past your wing, which was the uh, propeller, obviously. Um, but just the speeds that you could reach were were unparalleled, and and actually the uh, the efficiencies, I believe, today are actually. Um, at, at, at parity or better, uh, I'd have to look that up with uh, propel, uh, propellers. But you know, when you're when you're debating whether you're going to get in a, a Cessna 172 and go about 150 miles an hour, or get into a uh, a jet airplane that can take you about 400 500 miles an hour, it really makes the difference. And I think that's what uh, what happened was just these jets made uh, air travel a huge industry. Uh, and Boeing was definitely at the uh, forefront of that, but uh, you know Douglas was was also a major competitor in that uh, early era. And I mentioned the DC three; that was one of the more successful passenger airplanes that was put out. Um, Douglas, I think, was absorbed into a McDonnell Douglas, which later reunited with Boeing uh, many years later. But uh, it was a much less clear field as to who would become dominant. Um, you know, we used to have Lockheed even making uh, commercial commercial jets. Now they're almost exclusively a military contractor, uh, but they used to be much more diversified. They made the uh, L-1011. Uh, 
I'm I'm blanking on any uh, other significant ones. I mean, I think actually uh, I should I should mention if we ever get around to it, I'd like to, but uh, you know we have a long list. But at some point, I'd love to do a show on Howard Hughes, and he actually was also in the aviation business. Uh, if, if you watch the movie Aviator, it's a, it's quite entertaining, and they show how he uh, developed uh, his own aircraft for TWA, which he also owned. But the Spruce Goose. We was, will uh, absolutely do a show on Howard Hughes. This is something I've yeah. been meaning to do for years. I, yeah. I have a lot to say about Howard Hughes. Yeah, I'm curious to hear your perspective. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Hughes is actually still around. Hughes Aircraft. Um, I, I don't remember where they ended up. I think they got bought out by somebody. But it um, it was independent until uh, I think the 80s when General Motors of all strange places bought bought Hughes aircraft so it was a much more diversified field for for a very long time well in the uh, in the post World War II era uh, there was a sort of seminal moment where the uh, the Air Force decided to allow Boeing to utilize some of these B-52 construction facilities or manufacturing facilities that were technically owned and run by the U.S. government. Uh, They leased them over to Boeing. And uh, the implicit deal was, or the explicit deal, was that Boeing could utilize these facilities uh, to start producing military and civilian aircraft. Uh, and so, you know, because by by 1953, uh, it's become very clear that uh, while there will be a burgeoning market due to the impending sort of Cold War and the Korean War, and uh, there's, there's a realization amongst the upper echelons that we do need a strong aviation sector. This is also around the time that the the Air Force is officially split off from the U.S. Army and set up as its own branch of the military, which was able to shower additional contracts. And, That's right. Yeah, it used to be the Army Air Corps. Yes, yes. And and uh, and some branches, or some not branches, but some offices of the U.S. Navy's sort of air power was, mold, or was folded into the independent air force. Uh, and so this, this allowed Boeing to be showered with more contracts, uh, have a had a have a better relationship with the government. They no longer had to deal with the army bureaucracy. They were dealing with the air force bureaucracy. And around this time, you have people that had worked at Boeing or had worked with Boeing who are now achieving high level positions uh, within the uh, the new air force. Uh, you have Boeing training military pilots and and vice versa. You have military pilots going into civilian roles at Boeing. So. The reality is that in the post-World War era, Boeing is you know, sort of very involved, along with a lot, several other aerospace companies, but very involved in sort of charting the, the future of the aviation industry in the United States. And as I said, there's a realization that, yes, we do need a strong aviation defense sector. But this conflict has shown the world uh, that and has shown the United States that there is real potential in taking what was learned in World War II and applying it to the civilian sector. 
if you snazz up the planes, keep similar design, make a couple improvements. A plane that was taking dozens of soldiers and some cars and equipment could easily be a plane taking people with their personal belongings from one city to another. Uh, and for the fuel efficiency standards, uh, you could effectively eliminate uh, congestion on the roads. You could eliminate uh, excessive demand for trains. You could facilitate more commerce because this is a time when commerce is mostly done in person. So suddenly, Boeing and the U.S. government and some of the other aviation uh, industry masters have uh, kind of charted the course. So this small move where you know the government is going to lease out these facilities to Boeing uh, is a is a unique part of that. And uh, there's a there's a lot of drama, yeah, not drama, but there's a lot of sort of machinations going on in the Pacific Northwest around this time uh, and in Seattle because there's a real question of what exactly Boeing is going to be doing in Seattle from here on out. You know they were cutting jobs. Uh, there were strikes. Uh, they were, you know, sort of shifting around product lines. And William Allen, who was the, uh, was the president of Boeing at the time, was a real kind of strategic genius. Uh, and he sort of petitioned for the new Air Force to expand uh, its battle groups and expand its capabilities uh, and expand, therefore, its contracts. But what he had also figured out was a way in which to work with the government to avoid further antitrust. Um, Boeing was starting to bring in a lot of revenue around this time. Although th times were tough due to the drop in business, they had accumulated a large amount of revenue. And they had accumulated huge uh, capital-intensive facilities. It was natural that they were going to start expanding. Uh, it was natural that they were going to start kind of wiping out a lot of their small competitors or just acquiring them. And the strategy that uh, that Allen sort of laid out was that if we keep these ties with the government strong. We can avoid the fate of Boeing in '34, where you know as the company is built up and it has all these capabilities and it starts to find ways to utilize them together, it's destroyed. I think that there's a very real possibility that if Boeing had gone through antitrust as it did in 34, and there was no World War II, uh, Boeing as a company would probably not have made it to today. Or it would be a, a division of another company or be a small sort of single engine manufacturer. Uh, it could have just been another company by chance that you know, became what Boeing did, just have a different name, I suppose. But World War II, in a lot of ways, saved Boeing, and it allowed, and it gave it everything it needed to create, as I said, uh, the commercial sector, which was passengers and freight. Uh, so going into the uh, the latter half of the fifties. Well, actually, in, in 1949, there's a 
uh, another seminal moment. There is a British company, uh, De Havilland, that is trying to sort of be the first commercial jetliner. The Comet. Yes. Crashes. Fails. And crashes again. Yes. <laughs> it becomes laughing stock. Yeah. Now this is a very, this kind of fits with the pattern that you see with the British, and this is sort of an aside, but with the British in several industries after World War II, um, they just can't quite make it work. Whether it's on the automobile sector, whether it's in the sort of nascent computer sector, whether it's in the commercial jetliner sector, uh, there are many sectors where the British have effectively just sort of dropped the ball. And you see here the real transition uh, from uh, the, the you know now dead British Empire to the United States as the leading sort of market maker. And, and if, if, I could, if I could extend off of that particular yeah. example to get into your broader point, uh, the Comet is an interesting engineering failure because the the way they built it was uh, it it actually performed fine in the laboratory. Uh, however, what was happening was the because of the uh, the advances and the propulsion technologies and the stresses that were put on the airframe, there were there were basically these stress fractures that were forming in the airplane over repeated usage and you couldn't really produce that in a laboratory setting at least at the scale at which the british were operating and it could be that because just of the larger home market of the united states compared to the british many people have said this about why hollywood became so successful for example versus the smaller european uh, producers or the british for example uh it was just the the economies of scale enabled companies in aerospace for example to do the type of prototyping and testing and actually recoup their investment uh, much more effectively than a smaller british manufacturer could if it was just selling into the british market um but it, the comet and i'm not a material scientist but i've i've actually looked into some of the background on this uh it it had a lot to do with the way uh materials fatigue uh over time and it just was not something that the british were able to capture in the laboratory uh and so just to get into your broader point of how america was sort of ascending and, and taking over from the british uh just the the sheer size of the american economy enabled these aerospace companies to make these huge capital investments and could more realistically expect to recoup them uh the the aerospace industry in particular is probably the most obvious and probably largest segment of the military industrial complex. And it is something that uh, the American people, American government are generally on the side of pretty much supporting. Uh, it's one of the few industries that America still seems to have an industrial policy around. And to the point where it explicitly uh, after World War II was able to get the Germans and Japanese to kneecap their own uh, airplane <laughs> making industries 
because of the the fact that they had lost the war. And that gave the Americans a huge advantage. And also uh, the Cold War enabled these companies to invest. Uh, and then just last point about the economies of scale. Uh, we mentioned the 747. Um, 747 is a fascinating uh, project because it was, it was built uh, with no factory for it. Uh, it was it was basically uh, greenlit, I should say, with no factory uh, in existence to produce something that large. Uh, they had to build it from scratch, and they had to they had to bulldoze an entire uh, site in Everett, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle, to build this thing. And to this day, I believe the the factory that they built uh, is the largest facility in the world. Uh, I know the Pentagon is, is, is huge as well, but, uh, in terms of just interior floor space, open floor space, it's probably the biggest, uh, to the point where it actually has indoor weather, um, because it's so big and that just is not possible in a country like Britain. They're just too small. Uh, the 747, um, was for the longest time, like the biggest thing, uh, on the playground. And it's just, um, it's just one of those few industries that America still still has retained. Uh, we've seen over the past 30, 40 years so much of it going overseas, but um, it's still one of those those iconic manufacturing industries that that's hung around. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the United States will fight tooth and nail for the aircraft industry or the the aviation industry. Uh, it, I think that that's why we've kept the uh what is it the import export bank or whatever around for all these years probably like i mean like boeing is the america's biggest exporter like single yeah, it, biggest it, exporter it is explicitly kept around because of our uh, our, our aviation industry uh you know it's it's so crucial that actually if you go and look at the uh let's say the presidential cabinets of Every president since at least Carter, you will find someone from Boeing in there. Even if they're a deputy something, you know, that they're like what you would think is a maybe lower level role, they're in there. I mean, it, it really is, particularly starting in the 80s, it be, just becomes like one of the chief institutions of the United States. It, you know, Directly and indirectly employs hundreds of thousands of people. It has a massive internal supply chain. It consumes a huge amount of resources. Like this is an internal institution. Uh, this is no longer just like a collection of engineers that have some factory space. Uh, this is uh, something much, much more expansive and ingrained. But you mentioned the uh, the 747. Yeah, I mean, to kind of like skip ahead a bit because uh, you know, I don't want us to get too long in the tooth uh, going over every kind of micro detail of, of Boeing's um, uh, timeline. So, you know, Boeing has like a couple of these great models. They have the 707, they have the, uh, the 727. Uh, in 67, they, 1967, they finally get the uh, 737 out. And this is like the creme de la creme of passenger planes. In fact, you know, the basic platform model for the 737 is still in use today. Uh, so 
you know, but partly why saying, they had problems. <laughs> yeah, and when you say the 737 Max, like it is just a refurbished, refactored, slightly re-engineered uh, airplane from 1967. To, well, to the extent that it is some of the same designs uh, from 1967. Then you can make a couple arguments uh, from that. You could argue that uh, it's it's possible that the actual form and design of the aircraft hasn't needed to evolve so much since 67. They sort of cracked the code. And at that point, the gains that you can make are really only on the engine side, the material science side, and the electronic side. Uh, and by virtue of, of the electronic side, I, I suppose the, the uh, computational side. Uh, but... And I think that that was that was like Boeing's marketing pitch for for the 737 Max, you know, in private. It was like, look, uh, we have a great plane design. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have the wheel. At this point, it's just about making the wheel out of better material. Part of that, however, was it was a yeah. it was a it was a pure cost decision where they uh, so 100 percent it was yeah. just it was total bullshit but yeah in, on some level you could i think if you were trying to genuinely argue that point you could make it without being a shell like you could say yeah look the 737 had a fantastic platform design it, it worked incredibly well you know, you could all you really need. That's what Henry Ford it. said. I know. <laughs> the Model T. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But it, this was to, to drive on the point. This was the the plane. I mean, this was the plane that made Boeing in a lot of ways. It was the seven thirty seven, um, and the seven forty seven as well. Sort of accidentally <laughs> contributed. Uh, Hugely to Boeing's success, Boeing, I think internally, had actually believed that the 747 was going to be sort of a misfire, or uh, you know they, they had some indication early on that, that the whole thing was going to go awry. Uh, but it ended up being like one of their most successful products ever. Uh, but I would say that these two planes really made Boeing, uh, which tells you something that that Boeing made its its. Uh, its technological zenith around the time that the United States had hit its uh, cultural and industrial zenith in the mid to late 60s. Uh, that was the sort of the, I guess, the beginning of the end, uh, you know, for the U.S. It was when things started to kind of stall out. You had some industrial problems, cultural malaise, problems in the government, you know, things start to kind of unwind a bit. We've done shows on savings and loan crisis, and one of my contentions was that it was actually in the late 60s when the savings and loan crisis truly began. Uh, everything just started to slowly decline starting around that point. Uh, so I don't think it's accidental that Boeing made its two greatest sort of achievements that gave it all of the money it needed to do other things uh, at that zenith. That was the peak of American engineering. That's when the entire industrial base is nearly perfectly laid out. You know, it has every facet. You have the United States sourcing huge amounts of raw materials domestically, and it has 
uh, you know, for things that can't get domestically, it's, it's, uh, very efficiently found ways to bring them in from international sources. You have, you know, strong institutions, strong bureaucratic institutions. You have good universities. They're putting out good engineers. Uh, it was a great time. So you get a great plane or great two planes. Uh, but eventually, you know, things start to kind of unwind, and uh, Boeing has a uh, a series of of uh, letdowns in the seventies. Actually, before I forget, uh, there was <laughs> there were a couple events that actually took place in the late sixties when Boeing was at its zenith. Number one. Um, Boeing created one of like the greatest factories ever made, which was the Everett factory. Uh, and that in of itself was a massive achievement. I don't think people quite realize how, uh, well, they, they built their own railroad to construct yeah. this stupid thing. I mean, it's just in, in the story, I think Bill Allen, you said, um, that guy, he literally played golf with the uh, president, I think of United and, He's like, um, we're thinking about making this uh, airplane. You want to buy it? He's like, sure. And they shook hands again. Could be apocryphal. And then that was the basis for initiating the Airplane. largest yeah. aircraft manufacturing facility, in let alone you know building, I should say, in the world. Uh, just a different era where there's so much more confidence in America about what you could accomplish and not have to worry about getting all the details correct and going through legal and environmental yeah. and all this nonsense. You just do it. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's inspiring. Strategic. And it, it's such a different time though, to like contrast it with the crap you have to go through today with, you know, compliance officers and diversity inclusion seminars and just, mm -hmm. you can't get anything done. And this, this is why heavy industries left the United States. I mean, it's very simple. It's gone to Asia and Mexico where in other places where you don't have to deal with this nonsense. And all we're left with is Facebook, you know, as like the industrial icon of this country, it's pathetic. Uh, but you know, this, this is to contrast today with what used to be done and uh it's it's tragic it's tragic i really like the uh the old <laughs> wasp business style where it's just like hey let's get together you know shake some hands we're gonna craft out like a, a grand strategic vision for the next 10 years of the economy like you know over a couple drinks uh the like the level of efficiency and confidence in a lot of these guys was uh, something to admire, uh, particularly if you go to business school or anything like that, or you spend any time in a business class in university, uh, teaching you deal making and teaching you sort of grand strategic visions and, and, and how to uh, think in a systematic way is just not taught. And I suspect these guys weren't necessarily taught either. They just sort of learned, or some of it was just instinctual. Um, but at any level, in 66, Everett Factory is, uh, the groundwork is laid for it. And uh, Boeing actually has its sort of first weird encounter with uh, 
McDonnell Douglas. And Lockheed and McDonnell Douglas start trying to compete with uh, Boeing's defense contract businesses. But actually end up sort of losing out. They're not able to compete. They lose contracts. They're not generating the revenue. Um, this sort of directly leads to Lockheed's financial problems in the 1970s that we we spoke about in our Lockheed episode. Uh, Boeing was the real uh, reaper for them in a sense, and McDonnell Douglas was sort of truly hitting its decline by that point. Uh, this was not long before the era in which it was. Uh, Kind of embarked on its um, its stock price manipulation game, uh, which was which would eventually become sort of the model for GE and how it would work as a company. But uh, at any level, uh, so Boeing has the seven forty seven, and um, there's this prospective market for supersonic travel as it was. And there's this big market where people think they have this idea of a market for hundreds of people being carried on a flight. We're going to carry hundreds of people at a time. We're going to be sending out hundreds of airplanes, hundreds of people on an airplane. We're going to have hundreds of thousands of people in the air at any given time over different parts of the country. And they're going to be carrying personal belongings and commerce and cargo. And we're going to you know, we're just going to have the most expansive, dynamic economy. How do we do this? And so Boeing, you know, was looking at this potential growth, and uh, they had a government-supported project, and they tried to develop the uh, the 2707 SST. Uh, and the idea was it was going to carry 300 people at the speed of sound. And the 747 was this other product that the Boeing that Boeing had. It was going to be this sort of like uh, rink in their mind at the time, like rinky-dink subsonic plane uh, that nobody was going to want to fly on. It was going to be a bargain. And, it, you know, it was just – it was something they had to do to capture that other market. But they were, you know, Boeing was fixated on this idea. What if we can have, uh, you know, supersonic 300-person travel? Uh, all of a sudden, Boeing has not properly invested in the 747 to the, at least their satisfaction. The government cancels the SSD contract or the SSD program, I should say, basically saying that the whole thing is like not doable. Uh, so Boeing goes through this problem where they have invested massive amount of money for the Everett factory. They've invested a massive amount of money for a program that is now not going to materialize. And they have to show something to investors. And they have to get a new plan out. Because at the time, they thought, okay, the 737 will be good for a decade. This was their original idea that the 737 was going to maybe be in use for a decade, that they were going to have new products take over roughly every decade or sometimes sooner than that that didn't pan out but this was at the zenith of boeing they, this was their original plan so they have this 747 project nobody wants it 
the only people that want it are Pan Am. And so Pan Am is actually Boeing's most important customer. Pan Am, for those who don't know, is a now non-existent air, uh, airline. But there was a time when Pan Am was the, you know, the airline of the United States. Everybody took Pan Am flights. There, there's a good uh, portrayal of the Pan Am ethos in the movie Aviator uh, and as portrayed by Alec Baldwin, the president of the uh, then uh, primary, I believe, um, flag carrier of the United States. It stands for Pan American. And it was in a time when uh, air travel was regulated along with pretty much every other major commercial transportation. Uh, there were uh, since the Great Depression, uh, it was basically FDR's New Deal to regulate as much as they could get their hands on. And they were coming up with uh, rate tables for everything from trucking to railroads and airplanes. And the uh, era of regulated air travel was uh, when Pan Am became the uh, the big the big player. TWA was actually Howard Hughes' upstart that was challenging it. And uh, I think there were uh, maybe a few others of note, but it, those are the two big ones. And yeah, Pan Am was was a was a huge player until uh, I think it went bankrupt in I want to say eighty nine or early nineties. I can't remember exactly, but somewhere around then, uh, after deregulation of uh, it's actually Carter who deregulated uh, in seventy nine, but during the eighties, uh, Pan Am was struggling big time. Yeah. Pan Am is also one of the casualties of just the uh, of the economic malaise of the 1970s. Uh, so one of the mo more important periods of Boeing history that I think Adam and I wanted to bring up was the uh, the the bust, the the Boeing bust, as it was known uh, in basically like 1969, 1970, 1971, 1972. Well, there was a very uh, famous sign in Seattle where Boeing used to be headquartered um, that uh, was put up actually by a realtor. And it said, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? Because it was, it was turning into uh, sort of a ghost town. It, it was like a mining town almost where you had this huge <laughs> boom and then all these people yeah. were just leaving. And uh, you know, back back in the day, this is you know pre Microsoft, pre Amazon. I mean, Boeing was the player on on the block, and when they were having right. problems, Seattle was having problems. Yeah, that, that is an interesting observation that it was like a company town in that respect. Uh, Seattle did not start as a company town. Uh, it was one of the sort of a, a natural city, if you will. It's a natural place to sort of build a city. Uh, but it did, it does have this uh, very odd relationship with its associate companies. Uh, it, it is a place that has always sort of attracted like one or two big companies at a time. And Boeing has continued, although less and less, I don't even think is one of the two big ones anymore. They're, you know, they're basically both at this point, it's Microsoft and Amazon that really drive uh, Seattle. But you're right in that Boeing really uh, took, did the company town sort of treatment to Seattle, not on purpose, uh, but basically 
there's a there's a real lesson in business here that Boeing learned the hard way. Creating markets and creating a lot of excitement for markets and, and putting out lots of interesting technology and building a branding around it will create such massive demand that even you can't now satisfy that market. And suddenly there's all, all kinds of competitors who are trying to satisfy the market, domestic and international. Mostly, you know. And this is a capital intensive business. This is a business that requires huge amounts of money to function. I mean, it just can't function without it. So you're in sort of a, a paradox here. Capital intensive, overly saturated market. It's not as if this is the market for hotkey items. This is not the market for, for I don't know, rubber nipples made in China. <laughs> like, these are airplanes. This is, this is a big deal. You can't just turn these things out, no matter how good your internal processes are. Uh, I mean, this sort of strange market phenomena and government canceling that SCS pro Boeing is in a real dire strait. It is loose of revenue. It's laying off workers. It's liquidating assets. It's selling property. That company is basically imploding. And by 1971, you know, there was like real... Uh, systemic risk of uh, Boeing going bankrupt. And I think that they were kind of saved by the skin of their teeth through a few decisions. Number one, one of the things that Boeing did very, very wisely was that Yes, it did lay off a large number of scientists, engineers, technicians, workers. Uh, it killed its R&D departments. But the, the smart play was that it completely wiped out sort of its managerial uh, bloat. It's natural that companies over periods lots of managerial bloat. Even companies that were sort of operating in their lean, mean machine mode of the late 60s had this problem. And that was one of their chief observations was that we have just thousands of guys that don't do anything realistically. Uh, it's all sort of maybe value added or it's all just for random processes. And you know, if there's no business for those processes, then they got to go. So Boeing completely wipes out all these managerial positions. Uh, number two, uh, and they it actually kind of returns to an, an engineering-led company just uh, sort of by process of elimination. There's no one left to, to really fill the ranks. You have engineers becoming uh, chief executives. You have engineers uh, being promoted because there's no sort of um, MBA types there anymore. And in 72, they're able to kind of pull themselves out of it because they get the government contract for the AWACS system, which is uh, still somewhat in use today, although it's been modernized. Uh, but it's it's, it's a, sort of a regular in uh, kind of 
Tom Clancy-esque movies yes. where you see kind of the uh, the panoramic shot of the airplane or the uh, command and control and the sky's operations center. Uh, it's, it's this uh, airplane. I, I don't remember if it's 757 or something, but it's a, it's roughly of that type uh, airframe with a giant radar dish on the top that is very distinctive looking. Uh, th- that's the AWACS. And I don't know how much it, 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 you know, made, uh, Boeing, I, I never assumed it to be a fortune, but, uh, yeah, I, I've always recognized that airplane as being distinctive. Yeah. Um, so Boeing and it's hour of desperation, <laughs> uh, sort of returns to its mode as a defense contractor. Uh, this is a, a this is a fast sort of uh, pivot strategy where Boeing created had a huge role in creating this market and uh, had actually just destroyed uh, because of it. They had just invested so much in in really the branding and the marketing around air travel that they had. Uh, made such a massive demand for it that it was just sort of uh, superhuman. But they go back to defense contracting. They have the AWACS, which was the big save. Uh, they have uh, cruise missiles. They get a couple other minor military and government contracts kind of all over the place, and uh, they're still cutting jobs. Uh, because in the 70s, you also have another problem. They have a massive oil crisis. So nobody's buying a lot of new airplanes. In fact, you know, the, the chief demand of Boeing at the time was like, can you service these aircraft to try and find a way to make the existing aircraft more fuel efficient? You know, that's what we do. Can we refurbish them? Uh, that was like what was driving part of Boeing's business. Uh, but... Towards the end of the 70s, they've kind of pulled themselves out of it. They've made enough money off the government contracts, and they moved back at the R&D stage for uh, 757 and 767. And that is really uh, part of the story of uh, Boeing in the 80s. And Boeing in the 80s was a great time. They have 757, 767. They're doing huge commercial sales. Sales, uh, a lot of international sales. They're getting deeper into the freight market. And this is around the time when Boeing sort of generates the, uh, uh, I want to say the, not the mystique, but the widespread belief in them as the, the premier engineers of America. Uh, because they have successfully sort of weathered the storm. A lot of their competitors have died out. And they've either acquired them or they've just simply uh, let them sort of fade away. Boeing starts to invest really heavily in a lot of departments. One of the really fascinating departments that they actually, not, not departments, but technologies that they invest in, is a computer-aided design, is basically CAD design uh, and CAD software. And 
throughout the 80s, they're making investments in this software. They're trying to integrate it into the company. And they actually do such a successful job that they are able to utilize it to build a 777 aircraft throughout the 90s. So the 80s are, you know, this this golden time when it's all about, you know, growth, expansion, investment. They had sort of resisted a lot of the urge of the 1980s, which was to financialize, which was to cut employees, uh, go on cost-cutting drives, uh, you know, turn the company into a stock game, which is exactly what the uh, characters over at. Uh, McDonnell Douglas had had been doing to their company. Um, it's partially what Lockheed was doing, uh, a lot, and it was partially what a lot of just companies in general were up to. Boeing resisted that. Uh, this is still, as I said, a company mostly run by engineers, and my contention is that they uh, had eliminated very wisely a lot of people that would have gladly taken the company in that sort of general 1980s direction due to the economic problems in the early 70s. They had just gotten rid of those guys before they could get their careers up. Do you have a a theory as to why Boeing chose to do that or was able to do that, whereas McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed uh, maybe didn't? (laughs) Uh, I don't have a good theory. Not not anything that I've read that would indicate why, just that they did. I think I, I, the only thing I, I can notice that's different is is Boeing just is more of a commercial as opposed to a military yeah. um, company. But I, other than that, I don't really know of the internals that internal dynamics as being that different. Um, personally, I, I think yeah, I actually think that that's compelling, and the reason why that's compelling is that. Uh, there's a at defense contractors there there is this arrogance it's sort of baked into the cake uh, our business will never go under even though a lot of these guys do end up going under uh, they, they really do believe like we will always be needed and so we can always just sort of screw around waste money blow resources um, bloat the contracts waste time, add bogus features. I mean, this is what defense contractors do. So I think if that's your mentality towards your product, you will inevitably wind up with lots of managerial positions. Also, if you have to constantly, if your whole business is interfacing with government and military organizations, you need massive amounts of people to facilitate that. It's not an easy process. In fact, it's like you basically need a small army on both ends of that arrangement just to make it work. I mean, it's just so complicated. Um, there are entire federal bureaucracies that are sort of minor, but are still are like thousands of people each. And their whole job is to be like the mirrors of corporate counterparts. And there's thousands, tens of thousands of these corporate counterparts across these companies, and their roles are just to like interface information and plans and, and budgets. And I mean, you know, Christ, you, you could like you could do away with eighty percent of this in the modern day with like 
an OCaml project. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's no, sort of I mean, they, they probably live on Outlook uh, email yes, clients yes. software, and their their emails consists of uh, we need to go to a cocktail party with this uh, congressman, and we need to go to this uh, presentation where we're going to do PowerPoint. There's very little actual like product work uh, being done. It's basically just a giant sales organization at that point. And uh, I'm not saying it's not necessary if you're in that type of business, but I think you you make or break your business more on probably the relationships you have as opposed to the products that you have, um, unfortunately. And the the nature of, I think, the commercial aviation industry being as uh, relatively open and competitive as it is, it probably fosters a more... I mean, Boeing used to be, maybe you could say accused, but at least described as sort of the, uh, the home of the Boy Scouts, where everybody was kind of uh, dedicated to putting out, you know, safety and... and Perhaps, well, innovation is sort of a debatable one, um, but I think safety was much more of an em- emphasized quality at Boeing yeah. as opposed to some of the other companies. Uh, McDonnell Douglas, for example, was having a lot of issues with uh, the DC-10, um, which was the 747 competitor. It was a wide-body jet, uh, three-engine actually as opposed to four, but uh pretty iconic jet in a, in its own right uh, because of its uh, design it it has that that third jet and the vertical stabilizer which i always thought looked pretty cool but the uh, only other one that was really in that sort of category was the lockheed competitor the l-1011 which uh, some actually think is a very beautiful design where the the third engine is placed um in an S pattern as opposed to straight back, like with the DC 10. Uh, and they did that. I, I don't remember exactly why it was actually, uh, it was a, it was an engineering problem they had to solve, but, uh, it created nonetheless, a very cool, uh, design, uh, featured in uh, passenger 57. If anybody's, uh, not seen that, uh, would recommend, but, uh, those two companies were struggling um, in the 80s, and it was sort of becoming clear at that point that Boeing was pulling ahead of them in the commercial space. Uh, there was actually a bribery scandal that took place, I believe, in Japan with Lockheed uh, in the 80s regarding uh, sales of its jumbo jets over there. Uh, Japan in the 80s was basically uh, buying two major things from the United States, uh, big aircraft and cigarettes. Marlboro's in particular. Uh, and it was kind of a big political topic because the United States still at the time was still a uh, more industrialized nation. And, and there was a large enough blue collar workforce that would put up a an alarm when imports from places like Japan were coming in. Today, it's China and Mexico. But at the time, Japan was the big, uh, big challenger. And uh, in order to address some of the trade deficits uh, that were building up in the United States vis-a-vis Japan. Uh, airplanes were actually viewed as one of the few things that uh, the United States could still manufacture and, and export to uh, Japan in particular. But uh, Boeing uh, by the 90s had effectively killed off the Lockheed basically just gave up and then McDonnell Douglas merged with Boeing in the uh in the mid 90s uh but boeing strategy which 
I don't know when you want to get into, but it, it took a very interesting globalized uh, strategy in the 90s to attempt to sustain its uh, dominance in the marketplace. Yeah, it uh, or released the 777, and it did a lot of... Which was an excellent uh, air, airplane, by yes. the way. And it was yes. uh, under the direction of uh, Alan Mulally, who I've always had a lot of respect for and, and also internally uh, had a lot of respect from the engineers in particular, but it was, uh, again, just these kind of, uh, well, probably because of McDonnell Douglas, uh, people coming in, it was these MBA more cutthroat types that, uh, didn't want people like that running Boeing anymore. Uh, just very briefly before I forget when, uh, I, I don't remember off the top of my head what exactly the, the, the famous quote was, but it was, when Boeing and I think Boeing ostensibly bought McDonnell Douglas, but many people in Wall Street uh, viewed the management at McDonnell Douglas effectively gutting the the executive teams at Boeing and doing the opposite of what on paper it appeared to be uh, what was happening. And so they uh, they described McDonnell Douglas as the home of the hunter killer assassin going up against the boy scouts and effectively you could guess which one won but the um company changed markedly in the 90s for sure yeah you know it's been described as a uh, as a reverse m&a <laughs> right uh in, you know inexplicably all these psychos from McDonnell Douglas are brought on to Boeing. Despite the fact that Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas, Boeing also just it took out massive amounts of debt to make the purchase. It, you know, it was it was a, a strategically unsound move, I think, to begin with. But honestly, mergers, I've I've um, I haven't done the, the full quantitative analysis on this because, well, I have a lot of other things I need to do, but. Uh, just very superficially in my observations, I have yet to, I, I, I struggle to think of a, an effective merger, uh, that has happened in business history in an industry as complicated as something like aerospace. I think it's possible when you're doing something that is effectively, you're putting two companies that are almost like clones of each other together and you're just reaping the economies of scale. So like if you have, you know, a gas station company on the West coast and you want to merge it with the Rocky mountain gas station company, I mean, it's like how much is your internal operations really going to be needing to be tweaked in that merger? Probably not at all. Yeah. You probably can just replace one, cut the costs entirely of that, and then just reap your economies of scale. But when you're talking about something like semiconductors, aerospace, even automotive, uh, you're putting together very complex processes and supply chains that are probably going to be enormously difficult to put together seamlessly. And they never are seamless. I mean, investment bankers will you know, give you a stupid PowerPoint to say that they are, but you know, they're not engineers. They're not manufacturing experts. They're, they're basically just people who play with spreadsheets. And, you know, if you've ever worked in a manufacturing environment, you, you understand very quickly how 
deeply intricately important the company culture is to creating quality products on time and in a cost-effective way. And I think the the pace at which commercial aviation is done versus the pace at which military aviation is done is, is not necessarily very compatible. And uh, also the the sales process is very different. And so you're just having these kind of duplicate systems that are probably duplicate for a reason. And then when you try to gut the other one uh, in order to save costs on paper, you're going to end up destroying the ability of that company to deliver on what it's supposed to deliver. Uh, and so I, I've, I've always observed, again, just somewhat casually, but I've, I've observed that mergers in complex industries are very bad ideas. I think acquisitions are perhaps more digestible because you're, you're taking one company who has a very clear culture and you're taking on something that's smaller that you could then dedicate time and resources to properly integrating but it's not very disruptive or at least relatively disruptive and it can be done. I think there's been much more success with that, but these giant mergers, they're really just these grandiose things that these CEOs dream of, you know, at the country club. And I think they end up ruining a lot of companies because of uh, their egos, frankly. Yeah. This was a trend in the nineties. There was, Oh, it's been a trend much longer than that. I mean, the seventies is probably the the iconic era of the conglomerate and all that stuff. And it was actually in the eighties where they, they viewed, uh, conglomerates as actually being very ineffective and the whole concept of the core competency became more, uh, more relevant or more taught in business schools, I should say. Uh, the nineties, uh, yeah, you, you saw a lot of mergers. A lot of that had to do with the end of the cold war though. Um, I don't know if that's particularly a general trend, but it was, um, I mean, mergers and acquisitions have been around for a long time, but I think the peak of them was in the seventies. It got a little Got, it got kind of, there was some steam in the in the eighties, but it was more about like uh, hostile takeovers and then gutting divisions. The, the the real like let's just merge and make make giant company corp. I think that was the era of the seventies. I think the nineties was um, no the mix thing. Well, give me. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, but I I would I would argue that the 90s was, particularly starting in the mid-90s, was around this time mm-hmm. when Boeing and McDonnell Douglas merge up. It really was the the big M&A buyout. It wasn't like the gutting strategy. No, no it was, but, but your statement that that was the general trend, I don't think that's particularly correct. I, I think it was in aerospace, yes, because again the the cold war basically gutted a lot of these companies relevancy and they had to merge or die according to the u.s secretary of defense i think in a white paper but um the overall trend in the 90s was more like you know you need to get lean you need to you need to cut divisions that's what general electric was doing when they were like selling things off not merging um so that that's all my point was well but we can and, we, uh, we can move on. It it, it doesn't really yeah, matter. Yeah. Let's, let's focus I mean, on. I, I would say, in, <laughs> in my opinion, um, M and A's work well if you want them to work well. So Lockheed's a great example of this. I'm not 
shilling for Lockheed Martin. Please don't take that out of context. That's, that's going to be a sound pipe. Lockheed is a, a great example of this. Maybe so. Lockheed <laughs> socialist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, but Lockheed, you know, as, as we've detailed, companies built on M and A. I mean, truly built, but it was all pure acquisition. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I want to underline the difference between acquisition versus merger. Yeah. Merger is a different animal. Yes. Yeah, and and I think that uh, M and A's, particularly the A's, work very well in the software industry, incredibly well, and they're practiced constantly. Uh, at all scales, at all levels, like you know, it's very common. Um, but the the merger of McDonnell Douglas and Boeing, as I said, made didn't make a lot of sense. It wasn't really clear what exactly McDonnell Douglas brought to the table. If you look at the this the the era in the nineties, McDonnell Douglas is is basically regarded as a dying company. It's lost most of its divisions. It has no R and D. It's got a, a a couple of just you know sort of cold hard guys who like to cut, and they're appeasing Wall Street. They got a good stock price. Okay, but that's it. That's what they bring to the table. They bring they bring Wall Street connections to the table. That's all. So it's not clear to me, and maybe there are sources out there that I just haven't found where it's you know deep, you know incredibly deep. Exactly, all the machinations were, although it'll probably never come to light, in the boardroom uh, in particular. Why Boeing thought they should do this? Like you know, something had to have been said, or some multiple things were said or done. To put Boeing in this position where they made this incredibly weird risk, and it was a risk in terms of it might not pay out, but it ended up being a massive mistake because it was like letting the fox in the hen house. And uh, Boeing really just uh, starts to decline almost immediately. It declines. Uh, so to to kind of jump to Talk about a few things that we said we talk about uh, the documentaries and the Max Crisis. So, uh, well, okay, I, I have an answer to maybe why they did the merger, but it sounds like you're jumping ahead past that. So, should no, I address no, that go now? Ahead, okay, so yeah, the CEO in um, at the time in prior to the merger in the '90s at Boeing was uh, Phil Condit. And he was uh, an engineer, actually a very bright guy. He had uh, he was like the first American, I believe, to get a PhD in engineering from a, a Japanese university. It was, it was pr- pretty pretty interesting uh, achievement in my book. Um, so not unintelligent at all. Not uh, not an not an engineer, but he what he lacked perhaps was the ability to manage a corporation uh, in the sense that he was a guy who was used to dealing with uh, aeronautical problems, dealing with, um, you know, fixing wing designs and whatever uh, manufacturing details. Uh, and he was very good at that and, and good, good problem solver. But 
I read uh, a book on this era at Boeing and it sort of described what happened to the guy when he got into the executive chair. Um, he, had, he had kind of a colored personal background where he had like married his secretary, been married and divorced multiple times. Um, I think what, if, if I had to sort of describe what happened to him was he, and he, he was sort of known for having kind of a grandiose uh, way of spending his money also. So I think if I had to kind of give a, a pop psych armchair analysis of, of him, he was a guy that sort of was very back office for most of his career. And when he was chosen for the head job, he aspired to be more than perhaps what he was cut out to be. And he fancied himself as being kind of uh, this, uh, you know, remade man. Whereas, you know, most engineers, they're they're somewhat introverted. They're, uh, you know, not necessarily uh, super charismatic types. And I think when you put a guy like that in the CEO chair, sometimes it goes to his head, for lack of a better phrase. And my impression was, is that he wanted to do this deal because he got enamored with the types that he wasn't. But in particular, the guys at General Electric at the time in the 90s were really just getting all the attention in the business press. And the guys at McDonnell Douglas were of the mind that that was sort of the way you're supposed to run your business. You're supposed to cost cut. You're supposed to, you know, gut divisions. You're supposed to do all this stuff. And the book kind of made the case that this was sort of how he was culturally attracted to this lifestyle, this sort of Wall Street management style, as opposed to what he had actually been doing for most of his career very effectively. And he just kind of, when he got to the top, he was he was uh, enticed by the siren song of Wall Street. Um, don't know the man, but I, I can also add that after the merger, he also made some questionable decisions where they were, um, they were going to make a, an airplane called the... Um, Sonic Cruiser, and it was going to be a 0.95 Mach aircraft that was, you know, just the dream of any engineer, aeronautical engineer, that you, know, you could build an aircraft like this that was sort of not quite the Concorde because the Concorde actually was relegated to uh, transcontinental flights over oceans mainly because it made a gigantic noise, aka a sonic boom, when you flew over populated areas. So they basically said, well, you can put this on the ocean, but that's about it. And so it wasn't actually a very commercially successful aircraft. Uh, but the sub, but almost sonic, sonic cruiser idea was kind of interesting because it was going to be this uh, this jet that almost got to the, the sound barrier, but didn't quite cross it in order to be able to fly over more populated areas. So interesting idea. Uh, they killed it. Uh, and probably that was a prudent move given what happened with nine 11, but, uh, he, he killed that. Um, and he also, which I've never really, uh, thought was uh, even close to being a good idea. He moved the headquarters of the company out of Seattle, the home of the, this operation for decades to Chicago of all places. And this was part and parcel, something to do with like the McDonald Douglas thing, but it also had, I think a lot to do with the uh, the press 
uh, and the unions giving him a hard time about his personal life and also some of the manufacturing and union issues they were having in Seattle. And so they wanted to, with the McDonnell Douglas being based out of the Midwest, they wanted to move the headquarters uh, to Chicago in more of a neutral location. But I've never understood or well, I've understood some of the reasons, but I've never agreed with the, the decisions typically to take the headquarters away from where your production is. I think that's uh, an integral part of any company's operation, especially if they're engaged in manufacturing, obviously. But uh, they moved the, the headquarters there. And so just this particular guy, I think you had an ego maniac that wanted to rise above what he felt like he was for most of his life. And I think that is honestly uh, probably a big factor in this whole thing. Um, it, it doesn't make any more sense than that. I mean, like financially, I don't think it made that much sense. I don't think, uh, I mean, you could argue from a diversification standpoint, it might've made some sense to get into the more defense industries because it's sort of a, it's a cushion in case there's a downturn in the commercial aviation business. Uh, but operationally, how they executed on the merger, I think was a huge disaster managerially. Uh, I think it, it caused huge problems down the, down, down the line, down the road with uh, the different uh, aircraft problems they were having with the 787, for example, and the 737 MAX. Uh, the corporate culture changed uh, you know, for the worse. Uh, so I, I, think, I think that's my assessment of why that merger happened in uh, I, I don't think it was a good idea mainly, but it was, uh, it was basically one guy's, I think, dream to be more than he was. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. The, uh, 787 crisis is actually, uh, under discussed, but there was an article a couple months ago, actually, uh, basically detailing that I think Boeing's lost about $4 billion in the 77 Dreamliner. And, uh, you know, it, it, you can which tell isn't that, which isn't that bad. I mean, they're not, their production run is not over yet. So it, but, it'll probably, they'll probably make money. It's still just sort of emblematic sure. of between this and the max and some other problems. Like it, it is just emblematic of, I think a wider problem, uh, Something else that was very interesting regarding the 90s is that, I'm sorry, the 90s merger is that I think a lot of the senior management uh, probably wanted to reverse the trend that I spoke about that happened in the early 70s, uh, which is if you remove the power center of Boeing from where all the engineers are you effectively cut out of the loop all those engineering guys, all those QA guys, all those software guys uh, from building careers, getting into management positions, and eventually maybe into C-suite positions. So it was sort of a, a capture of the institution. Uh, interestingly, too, I think that in the 90s, there were some indications that uh, Seattle and Washington State in general were kind of on the decline. There were there, there were a lot of problems with Washington State towards you know the early 2000s, declining industry in general, population issues, some net outflows, uh, didn't see the growth that they had liked anymore. Started having more hostile governments come in, so uh, or I'm sorry, governorships come in. I think that 
all of these combined, you see this general idea of uh, Pacific Northwest is finished and we're going to pursue our, you know, our path in the Midwest and back towards the East Coast. Interestingly, you know, being in Chicago, this puts them in close proximity to a lot of financial institutions, a lot of banks, which are not as well represented and haven't been uh, ever really in the Pacific Northwest. It's been a it's been a region without a large presence of the American banking sector for a long time, and I would assume that was part of it as well was closer proximity to the financial institutions. In the um, so in those documentaries that I had mentioned, they both bring up the merger. Okay, so they both they both touch on it for like <laughs> for like I don't know thirty seconds. Of course, I mean, they look, just, the, these people are uh, they're just journalists. I mean, yeah, they, they don't and they, really... they kind of imply. So I think it's they both. So again they both have like a lot of the same underlying messages that the nineties merger was bad because corporate merger bad and uh, the, therefore plane crash. You know, it's very, it's very droll. Um, they don't really explain the mechanics the way you did. And these are like people with money who are paid to do this. <laughs> like, Research is yep, just, story of my life. Yeah, Stupid people yeah. with authority, just kind of like spitballing, you know, doing some reading on it. But uh, at any level, in both the documentaries, they do bring this up. They don't focus much on it. They don't deliver a lot of context. The only context they deliver is that the merger went, that probably went bad, and that uh, Stone Cipher gets th- uh, Harry Stone Cipher basically loses control of the company. That's. I thought Stone Cipher was McDonnell Douglas, though. I'm sorry. Yes, Stone Cipher gained control of the company. Right. But yeah, yes, it. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's basically all they explain. What a great name! What that. a great name, by the way. Yes, that, Stone that is a, that is Cipher. A, that's a good name. Yes, yeah, be like a some. Bond villain, you know, name. There is uh, some idiot that's like a professional uh, CNN commentator. Apparently, he's like a uh, former CIA operative or something. His name is John Cipher, as in like a code Cipher. Right. Yeah. I, I noticed that the Edward other day. Snowden. Yeah. <laughs> So like, did the CIA literally make this guy in a lab like John Cipher? Like, what do we give him for his last name? Cipher. Yeah, John Cipher. Let's go for it. Um, but at any level, so those documentaries only bring up this one piece very briefly. Uh, what's fascinating is that they don't actually uh, attempt to give any real explanation for the max crisis uh and they don't attempt to give any because explanation they don't have an understanding yes of and the they, don't, they don't attempt to give any any explanation for boeing's uh demise i mean in the case of the netflix documentary i, I would imagine you could sum up their thesis as big company evil am i am i wrong on that Greedy evil is that, is that the, the, the sum extent of their explanation? 
which is not uh, you know completely wrong by the way but it's like okay that's your that's your axiom now what how do you fix it and then why did that happen in the first place and how do you prevent it going forward and how do you actually make a company that survives without just doing you know 100% of its uh its budget on safety and you know committees i mean you you have to obviously sell things at a certain point so th- there's th- this is why running huge organizations which i'm you know not running by the way but i can at least see from doing things on a much smaller scale how hard it is to execute on a small scale let alone on a huge scale and the track record of large corporations uh running them i mean it takes a a really talented person to do that and and i would point to somebody like alan mulally again many others have done that but he basically was just kicked out because you know the the uh, hunter-killer assassin types uh, effectively had taken over the company. But he went on to do great things at Ford. He turned that company around. He was uh, responsible probably for the reason why Ford was like the only other, other than Tesla, automaker in the United States not to take a bailout. Uh, excellent, excellent example of, of good good leadership. But I don't even know if this uh, these documentaries even know who that guy is. I mean, maybe they do. I give them credit if they do, but I, I doubt it. Yeah, not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, both of them have the general contention amongst both of them is uh, 90s merger went bad. Boeing uh, corrupted the bureaucracy, mostly the FAA. Uh, Boeing was in a tough spot because of oil price crunch of the early aughts and because of Airbus. Therefore, planes go down. Uh, I mean, the Netflix documentary basically ends with like a puff piece uh, marketing gimmick for the for the American Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, big <laughs> shocker. Like, this it, is why I don't watch these things. Very, it's very on the nose. I mean, there's this like uppity midget uh, congressman with a very unfortunate Sicilian surname. That is like basically the focus of the last half hour of the documentary. Uh, again, like the documentary has very little to do with Boeing. <laughs> they, they very little to do with the the business of making airplanes, and more to yes, do with yeah, yeah, uh, it's sort of like a I don't know an episode of Law and Order. Probably is more like akin to how they they sh- they shot the thing. Yeah, Boeing is like a supporting character in this documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the friends of Obama were featured more prominently. It's the the backdrop for, uh, you you know, like freakish uh, congressmen that nobody knows about and uh, Ethiopian plane users and and Uh american liberals whose daughter was on one of the planes oh by the way uh ralph nader's um one of his family members actually died in the ethiopian crash (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know bad on boeing for letting that one happen it's like you know i would probably write into my mcas software an algorithm that detects for nader last names and probably ejects them immediately from any aircraft that i would i would be owning or that, that is that is some delicious <laughs> that was a, that was cosmic a irony <laughs> god wow yeah. i didn't know that 
I didn't know that he that one of them was on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the Boeing 737 Max really was not safe at any speed. Right. Uh, but uh, so that's basically it. I mean, for the, so the, the Netflix one is is incredibly just uh, monotonous, and its yeah. arguments are very simplistic for why this happened, and it's doesn't really go into the mechanics of how it happened. They don't treat it like a leak. Like if we were to do a whole show on the max, probably need to do, you know, a week's worth of content because it's a very complicated it's, problem. It's way too complicated. In fact, it's arguably, uh, it's arguably too complicated to even, yeah. Uh, encapsulate in like a week-long series i mean and to be honest you know without my you know having been able to spend more time because i actually tried to get into the weeds on this it's just very difficult but on the surface of it honestly when you're dealing with a problem that just keeps on going you probably need to at a certain point say we need to go with a clean sheet of paper and start over because it, yeah. th- this particular airplane was long in the tooth. They knew it and they didn't, I don't think they knew that the MCAS was going to cause these problems. I mean, like obviously they would not want this frigging financial disaster to happen for them, but, or, or the, you know, the, the legal issues and all that, all that stuff. So they, they would have done differently if they could have proven that to the board of directors or whoever was signing off on this thing. But, and to be able to foresee it, I think is the hard thing. And hindsight is relatively 2020, but even now it's like, well, geez, you know, it's kind of hard. How would you really fix this airplane? I mean, let, let, let me try to explain it very quickly for anybody who hasn't spent any time in this, but if you want to spend more time in it, I encourage you to, cause it's, it's a good example of how you actually have big challenges when you're building something that's, uh, you know, expensive and, and, depended upon by many millions of people honestly every year uh how hard it is to execute things correctly um but the the real long and short of it i think was that they had a very old airframe uh airplanes today commercial airplanes today are predominantly sold on fuel efficiency uh and the ability of an aircraft to deliver that is, is affected by a few things uh, but one of the biggest ones is your engines, obviously. I mean, those are the things that burn the fuel. Uh, so if you can put a better engine on there, typically a bigger engine, you can get efficiencies out of them. And in order to change the airframe, you, you can also gain efficiencies and reductions in, in fuel requirements by reducing the weight. Uh, but you have to usually change, you know, the types of materials that go into them. Uh, 787, for example, they they invested heavily in carbon fiber as opposed to aluminum airframes. Uh, but the 737 is still using the traditional aluminum. And the reason they didn't want to redesign the airframe was one, take a huge amount of testing, a huge amount of re, you know, rework and prototyping, setting up new assembly lines, supply chains, everything. But also they didn't want, cause they have a huge customer base. Um, huge. I mean, it's, it's one of the, if not, 
the most successful commercial jets ever sold. It probably is still. Um, if you include all the versions of 737s, uh, it, it is like up there. And so they have a huge customer base. And so just like, you know, if you're running enterprise software, you know, you've got like, you know, Microsoft Office. And most people are not hackers. And so they're not really eager to learn a new piece of software. So if you're Microsoft, you basically are selling into an established user base and you're like, okay, I need to make these changes very easy, very simple. IT departments won't balk at them. I I need to basically take all that into consideration when I'm selling something. Same thing for Boeing. When they have a huge customer base, they have all the pilots that are trained on these things and you have to be certified to fly these things. You have to go through simulator training. You have to go through live training. Uh, and, and for safety reasons, because when things go wrong, you have to go through a series of checklists and you have to be trained on what to do correctly. And you are pretty much not allowed to deviate from those checklists and in order to follow the checklist correctly and know where all the buttons are. I mean, if you ever go into like a flight simulator, do you see like how complicated these cockpits are? They're really complicated. And it's not just like you press one button, you have to press a sequence of buttons and turn different levers and read, interpret information. So the workflows are on the order of probably tens of thousands of little processes that you have to actually accumulate over time. So when you change the design of an airplane in a radical fashion, i.e. or e.g. making a new airframe, you're going to have to retrain all those pilots. So they didn't want to do that. And that was a business decision. Okay, so what they ended up doing was they put on these new jets, uh, new engines um, that had about 10% more thrust than the prior type of engines, but they were more fuel efficient because you could throttle them down and they, they commensurately burned 10% less, uh, less fuel. Uh, so, but there's dynamics involved in these things. And so they can go, you can run them harder. Okay. And so if you're a pilot accustomed to a traditional 737, uh, you have a certain feel for how much you need to pull the stick back, push it forward, and et cetera, et cetera. So long and short of it was that these new engines introduced a flight dynamic that was more than what the pilots were used to. So in order to compensate for that without having to redesign the entire airplane, they basically put in this automated software system that's kind of a black box that nobody really has a clear understanding of how it works except for the people who built it. And even there, it's questionable if they really understand it because they, Hans was telling me they, they built it in Romania. Again, example of outsourcing, you know, like, okay, well, they don't make the planes in Romania. So maybe, you know, the guy who's making the plane and then maybe fly, test piloting the plane ought to be involved in a closer, you know, way. But anyway, so they built it in Romania. And what it did was it basically forced the airplane to pitch downwards if the sensors, the angle of attack sensors, which are basically the things that tell you how steep your aircraft is, because if you if you don't have, um, if you're too steep, you're basically not getting enough lift and you're, you're going to fall out of the sky. So they call it a stall. Uh, and then the engines have problems too. And so you try to keep it relatively level, but obviously you can't keep it flat because you have to go up and down. So there's there's sort of an envelope of acceptable flight patterns. And so the MCAS software, I forget what it stands for, maybe Hans, you know, but it's basically, it was designed to override the flight controls and the sensory inputs to the pilots 
to what was going on so that they would effectively correct the behavior in a way that they were used to such that the plane would fly in a way that it should, even though they had these new engines on it. So it's just this gobbledygook of mess. Okay. And it sort of worked. It obviously worked for most flights, but it was these particular pilots for whatever reason, couldn't figure it out. And I don't think it's to be blamed on them, honestly, because it it happened in two separate, very distinct places in very short succession by airline standards. So I, I don't, I don't think it's correct to blame the pilots necessarily. They probably had some role to play, obviously, but uh, I think it was predominantly a, a manufacturing and business failure. Um, but that's what happened. And they basically, they cheaped out on making a new airframe. So they used software to try to augment it. Um, I may have gone on a little bit longer than the long and short of it, but I wanted to kind of give my basic understanding but even now i i'm i'm like i don't really know if <laughs> mcas is all you know all to blame because again like maybe it was a complete you know small segment of it that was the failure or other people have been indicating if you go to like engineering forums or people who actually have some knowledge of this stuff they're not sure they're debating well i think the sensors might have like faulted out so maybe it wasn't the software's fault i don't know but like i said at the at the outset when you have something that's this, that's this messy and obviously this tragic, you probably at a certain point need to say, all right, because everybody is confused, we need to start over with a clean sheet of paper and do this right. And when you do that, you have much more clarity because you're going through each step one at a time and you put them all together and hopefully you don't make the stupid decision to build it in a thousand different places at once and then try to slap it all together at the end. I think it should be done in a much more controlled local fashion and then start going from there. But um, Hans, what, what do you think about why this thing happened? I mean, again, the problem with those documentaries and a lot of the literature I've actually read is that there's not great explanations for what happened. Uh, the explanations really just boil down to the MCAS system tripped up the pilots. In the, the case of the Ethiopian pilots, uh, evidently they did what they were supposed to do, which was switch the system off, but the plane had already, I guess, uh, you know, just gone into a full descent. It was going too fast, and I couldn't get out of it. Uh, part of what I couldn't really understand was that if, you know, you had this uh, one sensor broken, why the system would misbehave and the law of big numbers was if you really think about it it's particularly strange so ever since the max comes out up until this crisis there's thousands maybe tens of thousands of flights that are taken okay <laughs> with this plane with this model evidently with this software no crashes. Now, what's interesting is that there were some reported incidents. They're not covered in the documentary, but in other literature, there are reported instances of, of pilots uh, denoting to their airlines, their unions and Boeing about certain like abnormalities while flying, noticing some issues that didn't make any sense uh, that Boeing said they would look into. But 
this is sort of a normal process by which a pilot, you know, is encouraged to report something they notice is wrong, and then the manufacturer can look at it. Uh, but there was never any indication that there was something critically wrong with the plane, and there's thousands of flights, tens of thousands of flights that have been conducted with this plane with no issue. I mean, totally smooth flights. So the problem wasn't even necessarily uh, widespread. It's also not clear how it all of a sudden materialized. Both of these airplane, uh, both of these airlines had utilizing 737 Max for tons for just many many flights, no issues. All of a sudden, there's there's two issues nearly back to back. It's very inexplicable. There's no real indication that I found. Maybe it's you it can only be found in like in very obscure and lengthy FAA reports. I don't know, but uh, as as to why that happened, my personal theory. And by the way, both of these very junk documentaries don't even provide a lot of insight or theories into any of this. But um, my personal theory is that there might have been a software patch, and suddenly it became a problem. You know, in the and in the uh, I want to say the Frontline documentary, they try and paint Boeing um, as the bad guy when you have like Boeing uh, program managers who uh, are receiving these requests from these pilots from these airlines, ended up having the crashes, asking for additional training and, and additional flight simulator time. And the Boeing engineers are like, and the Boeing managers are kind of, in all these emails, they got FOIA'd and, um, and, and, and were part of the congressional investigation. Uh, they're like laughing about these people from you know, uh, the Indonesian and Ethiopian airlines and other airlines who are asking for additional training and complaining. Uh, and they're just like, you know, these guys are idiots. They, you know, they shouldn't have these planes. And they're just kind of like laughing about it. And they present this as like uh, a sort of a smoking gun that Boeing was negligent, that it did wrong. But, you know, by these pilots, they wanted more flight simulator time. Uh, there's no indication that these pilots actually understood what MCAS was. There's no indication that they were asking for more simulator time because of that. Uh, it's very possible these guys just routinely do this. Uh, I would not put it past like a third world kind of uh, low tier uh, airline to try and finagle free stuff out of Boeing, which is what they were trying to do. Uh, yeah, I didn't watch the documentaries, obviously, yes. and I didn't see these emails either. You could be right, but I, I would not assume without really knowing mm-hmm. if these companies were being just uh, greedy. I mean, it, it doesn't sound unreasonable that they wanted training. I, it sounds No, it wasn't that they wanted training. It's that they wanted additional training. Like. It was sort of. It was yeah. a separate. It, it was could have been a negotiation. It was thing, like yeah, a. Yeah. It was a. It was a That's separate to a safety it, thing. Yeah. It was a separate contractual uh, negotiation issue. That in the separate from any of that stuff. That in the course of the congressional investigation gets turned into the smoking gun or one of the smoking guns that Boeing was negligent. Um. Uh, 
it's it's just it, the whole thing is very odd. The, the 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 series of events as I laid out at the beginning is very odd. Both of these companies have this problem, nearly identical problem, back to back. And the first country to ground all 737 MAX flights are, are the Chinese. These are both countries with extensive ties, the ties of the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese have been engaged in a large-scale amount of industrial espionage for decades. They've been trying to get their claws on Boeing for a long time. Can we at least consider that uh, some of this was potentially introduced? That this was, was a, a case of industrial espionage? That this was a, an attack on... Uh, on Boeing by the Chinese or by other competing interests. Uh, there's another aspect of both of these documentaries is in that they, they freely offer their opinions on what's happening, but their opinions are just kind of weird uh, or, or not really satisfactory, uh, and, and they're they're narrow. And the there are there are a couple key insights that are either left undiscussed or underdiscussed. Um, so I feel free to criticize their opinions and their uh, and their 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 attempts to have insights. Uh, number one would be the issue of Airbus. So in both of these documentaries, Airbus is fingered as one of the primary causes of the 737 MAX indirectly. Because Airbus in the mid-aughts and, and around 2010 starts putting out a brand new series of aircraft that are going to just capture the market. And the United States government doesn't take it upon itself to effectively lock Airbus out of the domestic U.S. market. So Boeing is now put into this uh, unenviable position where it has to compete with Airbus. Airbus is a uh, is a European wide conglomerate. It's basically with, with states, direct government subsidies, with direct state funding and assistance from multiple very wealthy European governments. Yeah, France, Germany, the UK, notably Italy as well. But those are the main. Yes, yes. This is this is a completely unfair fight, and to allow it to compete domestically, it's just sort of clownish. Uh, so they do finger that that Airbus having this plane or these series of planes well, coming out. Well, the A three hundred, I believe, is the direct competitor. Y yes, and so they do finger that as as the problem, but they don't talk about how exactly did Airbus come to compete in this country? Why are, why is Airbus selling planes in the United States? Like, why is that allowed? You know, why is Airbus, which is basically <laughs> like the poster child for an antitrust target allowed to operate when Boeing's predecessor was broken up by antitrust? I, I think it, I think it's, complicated but it's sort of like okay so is boeing and so i think it's kind of a detente between the two i mean boeing yes direct subsidies not really but indirect subsidies probably because it gets that military funding it gets that import export bank stuff the, the, yeah so I mean... in order to appease the europeans 
they're like, okay, we're going to let you sell into America, but you got to let us sell into your market as well. And I think yeah. honestly, that's sort of how the piece is made. Like I can't really explain it any other way. Well, the bigger issue that's not discussed at all in any of these documentaries is the outsourcing. I mean, the issue, yeah, I'm surprised the issue, they didn't because that's an easy one. That's like, and that's a leftist thing to do. Or yes. though these days, who the fuck knows with leftists? I mean, they're so off the wall. But it's like they used to care about, like Bernie Sanders used to care about, like moving jobs overseas and immigrants even. But they've just gone so woke that I guess like that's verboten to them even to talk about it when it's such an obvious case of why Boeing had problems. Just <laughs> they they moved their factories all over the place. I don't know, man. It wasn't even the factories, although they do get a fair amount of overseas supply. Okay, well, you can say your supply chain in general. I mean, but what? Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't even just that. It was the software. Well, I I include that in the supply chain. I mean, that that's part of it, you know. And so much today can be done with like logic as opposed to changing out the the circuitry, like hardware circuitry. So that's part of the system. I mean, yeah. But yes, you're right. It's not a factory traditionally. Yeah, and it's not just the MCAS software, although the MCAS software was specifically worked on, and other pieces of the Max uh, software components were, were worked on by Indian subcontractors, Romanians. There's, there's, a, there's a Chinese firm that's involved in a different piece of the software for a different Boeing plan. You know, Chinese backdoor. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're looking at like a major catastrophe here, mm. and you know that there there was at one point in one of the documents that got subpoenaed by the Congress, where like some engineering or like software engineering manager for Boeing said something like, uh, it's idiots managing monkeys or something like that. And that was how he referred to the people managing the subcontractors. Sounds about right. Yeah. And that like they were writing just insane code and they had just no understanding of aeronautics. And evidently uh, the Boeing engineering teams were very well aware of that. But here's the problem. In neither of these documentaries, nor many of the sort of generally accepted mainstream views on this topic, is it brought up that one of the real, if you want to say smoking guns, that Boeing knew there was a problem, it is those emails where Boeing engineers and managers are talking about how bad the subcontractor code is. Yeah. So here is a real smoking gun of negligence. You hired shitty companies and firms, and you let them continue working on it. Yeah, because they because they about, underbid the. But we don't talk about that. But we are going to are going to like yeah. basically accuse Boeing of some kind of racism. I mean, there there's like in there is a non subtle racism uh, accusation leveled against Boeing. Of course, that's like that's how you attack people today. You don't yes, actually address it, the the physics. You you address the yeah. social uh, faux pas that are used as weapons today, and this is why we make nothing. We we import everything from other countries because we can never get out of our own way. We're wasting time with this nonsense. 
you know, some people actually don't give a fuck about what color of your skin is. It's just like, we want to do things well. And we notice that there are certain patterns and I'm sorry, but we're literally dealing with airplanes that catapult people into the air. And it would be nice if we can make sure they get back on the ground without crashing. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, if we don't think you're qualified, but we do not hire people based on the color of their skin. We hire people because they're qualified. That's how it used to be in the eighties. I mean, you know, and many people would say that's, that's even a mistake, but I think that's probably what Boeing should have been doing at least. And they probably were trying to do, but you know, these people, they, they oh God, people with actually no understanding of anything can use things like race or sex as weapons because that's all they got. They, they don't have a mind for actually producing anything. And I'm sorry I'm getting out of soapbox. This is probably nothing new to our audience, but this is a perfect example of how you destroy a once great company with nonsense. And we could do so much better if we would just get out of our own way. I mean, so many of these problems, you know, China is just encouraging it. I mean, Russia, you know, the, this, the, the, the CIA wants to blame Russia for this stuff, but I think China is the real beneficiary of all this crap. And, and I think, uh, and I know, I know for a fact, cause I went to school with a lot of these kids from China, they're waiting and they're watching America just fall, fall on its face and trip over itself because the, the, they, Look, to build an airplane, you need to understand physics, you need to have a manufacturing operation, and you need to have consistent, reliable people producing things. None of that describes Americans today because we do not have the ability to correctly discipline people for actually making critical errors that have to do with their job. The only thing that you're allowed to do is play these stupid high school girl games where you're snitching on people behind their back because they didn't, they didn't say the right pronouns. Well, you know what, sir, ma'am, whatever, you know, we have, uh, we have formulas that dictate how this wing needs to bend. And if you don't understand that math and you want to get this job because you identify as a attack helicopter woman. Uh, I'm sorry, you're not qualified. I mean, th this is like what needs to be done, but HR departments are run by people who don't understand engineering. Uh, they have bullshit degrees and all they can do is play these high school girl games. And so they're letting these people in. I mean, Silicon Valley is full of people like this. I mean, th there's a guy who uh, worked at Apple, just went on Joe Rogan, who wrote this tell-all book years ago about Facebook being overrun with this nonsense. Google has this problem. Um, it, it, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, you know, th these stellar operations of innovation and engineering are just being ruined by this crap. I'm just tired of it. I, it's just, it's just, I don't know how people don't see it. Well, to tie all this in a nice little bow, uh, to bring together some of the subjects we talked about tonight, the, I think the real uh, rise and fall of Boeing, we've somewhat documented here. In uh, December 16th, 2018, there was a, a seminal moment 
And I'll just read a quote from an article talking about it. Boeing, America's largest exporter, delivered its first plane finished in China this weekend. Built for Air China, the 737 MAX was completed and delivered on Saturday at a new facility in Zhaoshan, outside of Shanghai. Many more will follow with its burgeoning middle class. China is expected to need about 7,700 commercial planes over the next two decades, representing $1.2 trillion in sales. China's airlines are already the biggest buyers of 737s, which are Boeing's largest source of profit. China will soon be the world's biggest airplane market. Yeah, and and what do you think is going to happen now? The Chinese are going to copy everything, and they're going to start making their own planes. And good on them. I mean, you know, I, I don't blame well, here, them for this, he, but it's the, like this, the, the this, stupidity this, this, of these Wall Street types that allow this crap to happen is just yeah. what I question. I mean, anyway, go ahead. But this, I think. Uh... The significance of this isn't necessarily just that it's sort of poetic that you know, the continued decline but sustaining uh, graces of Boeing is found in China. Is that despite some of the circumstantial evidence, nobody ever wanted to publicly consider that maybe, just maybe, there's a very peculiar timeline here and that potentially a whole other theory is possible for what really happened with the 737 MAX, in my opinion, and these two accidents that have completely torpedoed Boeing as a company uh, and were, were massively embarrassing. Uh, why is it? that at the end of 2018, the Chinese have now apparently been given access to the 737 MAX from a technical perspective. Because, the, because than, the Chinese government won't hold let Hold on, Boeing. less than a year, less than a year later. Well, yeah, that's a good question, yeah. Planes fall, fall out of the sky, the same model, and the first country to make a big deal out of it yeah. and to start a global chain reaction yep. is China. I think it is, you know, out of everything that's been talked about for this crisis, thousands of articles written, whole Yeah, that, that has been overlooked, and I'm glad you pointed Nobody that out. Nobody has yeah. ever wanted to potentially look at this, and I'm not saying this is def definitively it, yeah. but it does show how limited people have become and that, you know, we, we are looking at the decline and fall of one of our premier industrial institutions, one of the last ones that still functions. And everybody is looking to score political points in kind of the, the burning embers of it. Instead of considering every possible alternative or even questioning how did it get this way? How, you know, what happened to Boeing? Uh, that really is going to be the question of the next few years as attention shifts away from other sort of uh, temporary issues, I think, and towards one of the larger ones, which is what 
is the future of American aviation. Well, maybe Tesla will make a plane. <laughs> I mean, people make fun of me for like admiring Elon Musk, but the, the reason I keep naming him is because there's so little else. And it's not to detract from his accomplishments, by the way. I think they are genuine. But the fact that, you know, there's all these fanboys for this guy, I think speaks to a broader problem is that there's a lack of role models out there. And companies like Boeing used to be much more respected. I mean, I've, I remember uh, sitting down with an aerospace engineer once, and uh, he told me he used to work at Boeing. And I was like, oh, wow, awesome, because you know, I've always – always liked airplanes. And so I was like, Oh, that's really cool. He's like, no, it's a terrible company. And I'm like, I, I was shocked. And I was really shocked because I, uh, I was used to look up to a company, but you know, this was probably 10 years ago. And I think it's indicative of how long, you know, these, these behemoths can survive, but how deep the rot gets and how hard it is to fix it, you know, down the line when you have problems like this, that, that start popping up, uh, having great, corporate cultures, you know, as corny as that might sound, I mean, it's, it's fundamental to creating quality products and creating uh, part of your society. I mean, you need to have meaningful quality work, which I think leads to a good economy and an overall quality of life. You know, it's not something that can just be ignored. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, we, we sort of as dissidents focus on the political, which I think is fine, but, um, foundational to any society is uh, its economy and its ability to to create and uh, not just life but also you know things and uh, and and that takes a certain culture and a certain people and a certain mindset and I think a lot of that has been lost and it's been replaced by you know global um, spreadsheet economics as I like to say but it's uh, it, it's it's in it's shown by I think problems like this, uh, where you have these people who are losing their lives, but also jobs that are being lost, uh, the respect is being lost, uh, the innovation is being lost. Uh, whereas we pointed out, you know, back in the 60s, I mean, the 747 was uh, one of a kind, and it was it was basically agreed upon on the back of a napkin. And that was possible and they pulled it off and to see all the snickering that goes on on Netflix about things that the producers of that film, they, they must've spent over a year building that, that film. And they, they've demonstrated how dumb they really are because they didn't identify some of the really more obvious aspects of this whole problem. You know, the outsourcing being probably the most uh, prevalent, um, you know, they don't, they don't know about the, the differences and the individuals involved. Uh, it, it's a very shallow, ignorant society, frankly. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's shameful. It's shameful. I, I do not fault the Chinese for doing what they're doing. I admire them, frankly, uh, because they've demonstrated with real results that they're more capable than Americans today of, of doing things coming from a poorer position. Um, they have a lot of advantages, obviously. I mean, they're, they're much less uh, culturally confused. Uh, they know who they are. They don't apologize for it. Uh, and they also emphasize education and uh, 
difficult subjects like engineering uh, and science, um, as opposed to gender studies. I mean, I don't know what people, you know, in Netflix think is going to happen when 70% or more of your college majors are in the humanities or something. I mean, I'm not like anti-humanities. I think there's a place for that in any society. But, you know, when the bulk of your, your, your population, frankly, I mean, pretty much everybody goes to college today when the bulk of your population is studying things that really don't amount to anything in the, in, in the job market. And this is why the student debt crisis happens because those degrees are pretty much worthless. I, I don't see how they don't see that connection. I mean, I, I bet they didn't make that connection either. It's like, I, I it's just a example after example of people who want to complain and, and, and point fingers, but it's like, well, point the finger at yourself and ask yourself first, what have you done? to help the problem. And if you don't have a good answer for that, uh, instead of making a documentary uh, on somebody else's attempt to solve a real problem, maybe, uh, you know, you should point the camera on yourself. So I, I think this is really just a general indictment of what America has gotten itself into. I, I don't think it's necessarily particular to Boeing because it's not. I mean, it's it's been seen in so many other companies, you know, Intel, uh, once great, you know, no longer great. Um, U.S. Steel is a laughing stock. I mean, there there were like lines in movies, you know, like this is going to be bigger than U.S. Steel. You know, this is going to be bigger than General Motors. I mean, all those companies are are jokes today, um, and it's uh, it's shameful. It's shameful. Mm-hmm.